VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, December the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this Come On With edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I guess it's day one of your Christmas elf magically navigating about the house leading up to the Christmas holidays, the festive season, many celebrations happening. In December for all different faiths, as you know, but the elf is moving around. Thankfully, my boys were a bit too old for it when it became a thing. All right, so yesterday, Canada dropped its final game at the FIFA World Cup, a 2-1 decision at the hands of Morocco. Morocco, the goal for Canada was an own goal, but anywho, they played a bit better in the second half. But on the soccer note, you know, with women who are outstanding, defending Olympic gold medalists, now with the men back in the World Cup for the first time since 1986, you wonder what the impact will be. Because until you see your stars nationally performing on the international stage, like we just got the chance to see the men at the World Cup, you know, it makes it a little bit more awkward to be as invested in soccer as other countries are, which are perennial appearances at the World Cup. So anyway, I wonder what that will be. On the soccer note, it was today in 2008, the Ballon d'Or, which is the Player of the Year, International Worldwide Player of the Year in soccer, Manchester United's Portuguese forward Cristiano Ronaldo won his first award as the best football player in the world. Uh, Barcelona player Lionel Messi was second, and Liverpool striker Fernando Torres third. There's only two people in the world that have won the Ballon d'Or three times or more. Lionel Messi with seven, Ronaldo with five. So both are still alive at the World Cup. And I think there's a fair argument to be made that if Argentina goes on to win with Messi as the captain, it may indeed make him the finest football player ever. Now, I know Pele would like to have a word, but Messi and Ronaldo both still alive, but Messi with his seven and a chance to win the World Cup, that's a big one. Uh, check in at uh, Auckland, New Zealand with Canada's men's fast-pitch softball team. They were headed into their game against Argentina yesterday and dropped a uh, 5-4 decision. Yeah, 5-4. They were down 4 nothing. They fought all the way back. Uh, Brad Azekel had a home run for Canada, but now the record drops to 6-1, but they're still in good stead at the World Championships of Fast Pitch Softball. And this is a curious one. And hockey fans will remember it, and especially Montreal Canadian hockey fans. It was today in 1995 that then-Montreal coach Mario Tremblay, he left All-Star Hall of Famer Patrick Waugh in the net for nine goals, against Detroit. They eventually lost that game 11-1. to You'll remember it as Ross shuffled his way down the bench. He had words with Tremblay, demanded a trade, got traded to Colorado, went down to win a cup in Colorado, and that's the unceremonious exit of Patrick Roy from Montreal. And so who they trade? They traded Roy and the 13th star, their captain Mike Keane, to Colorado for Andre Kovalenko, Martin Ruchinski, and Jocelyn Thibault. 1995, Roy embarrassed and once out of Montreal. Painful. Okay, let's keep going. Oh, uh, on the hockey note, hearing rumbles and rumors that senior hockey is coming back to the West Coast. The Cornerbrook Royals, Deer Lake Red Wings, Port Basque Mariners are set to play early next year. They're thinking that they might also have the Grand Falls Windsor Cataracts in the league, so good news for senior hockey fans on the West Coast, and I guess in Central if Grand Falls does indeed pop the Cataracts into it. With sports. So we know that the Canada Summer Games 2025 are coming to town. 
A lot of work to be done, just a recent announcement, which some people are not too pleased with, with all the laundry list of needs and a $40 million project to prepare for the Canada Summer Games. $11 million-ish came out of the City of St. John's coffers. Now, it's two years and eight months, someone did the math for me. Two years and eight months, 140 weeks, just under 1,000 days, and a lot to be done. The $40 million track and field complex has to be built. Aqua Arena has to be refurbished up to national standards to host this type of event. They need to do some work on the tennis facility. Now, Kim Keating and Carl Smith, who are the co-chairs of the Games, hand-selected by Mayor Danny Breen, two terrific people, and they're going to get the job done. They're not being cocky, but they're being optimistic that with breaking ground in the spring for the new track and field complex, it won't be ready a year before the Games, which is traditionally the goal, but it will be ready for the Games, so say the co-chairs. Now, people who are uptight or upset or frustrated with that amount of money being spent on sports infrastructure... Mayor Breen estimates or forecasts that the economic impact in the region will be around $100 million. That's kind of comparative to some of the other economic impacts we've seen at Canada Summer Games over the years. He says it'll be like having 10 briars in a two-week period. 5,000 athletes and coaches will be making their way to the area for the Games. They're going to need 5,000 volunteers. I know for sure I'm taking a week's holidays to participate as a volunteer one of those weeks, there's 18 events on the calendar. Now, inclusivity is important, of course. There's going to be para sports, Special Olympics, as well as the able-bodied athlete events. So getting ready for the Games 2025, you want to talk about that, we can do it. And on that front, talk about volunteers. Coming up on December 5th is the United Nations International Day of the Volunteer, and we know full well the impact, the positive impact volunteers have here in this province. Okay, and this one is apropos of nothing, but I thought it was interesting. When I was a child, going to a zoo was fascinating. As I get a bit older, I understand there's lots of research done at zoos about animals and with animals, but there's still something maybe a tiny bit off-putting about animals in captivity like that. You know, they're not built to range in these confined spaces, but, you know, and things like SeaWorld are shut down. But the first gorilla born in captivity happened today in 1956. Uh, it was delivered to Ohio's Columbus Zoo. The gorilla's name is Colo. Grew to be the mother of three and the grandmother to 16 more gorillas in captivity. I'm not so sure what I think of all that, but if you want to take it on, we can do it. I just go to school. So there's rumors and rumbles that this year's grad season, the prom season, won't be going back to the glory days of the big soiree. You know, some of the rumbles include the fact that these big expensive events, and they do come at a pretty hefty price tag by the time you get your dress and your tux and your limo and a few bucks in your pocket and all these things, it does indeed show very clearly the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. But it's an important time in life. Remember all the stories when the grads were cancelled in full? The numbers of parents and students that were disappointed was overwhelming. So they may indeed be able to have the big glitzy and glamorous events in some smaller schools, obviously simply because of numbers, but maybe not in some of the bigger schools. So if you're the parent of a high school or a grade 12 student and you're hearing any of that talk, fill me in as to what you think is actually going on. And with the graduates, I'm told by many, this is no big deal. Public exams are canceled again this year and very likely to never make a return. Fair. There's people who have achieved a lot in this world without ever having taken a standardized public exam. I would like to know a little bit more about the modernized assessment tools that, that are being utilized. And I think most importantly, it would be interesting to hear from uh, people who have gone on to post-secondary, say university in particular, 
And without having any publics for a couple of years, what that meant when they went into university, and of course, exams are part of it. So I'm not saying that going, public's going away is a bad thing. Just wonder what it means for preparation, especially for students who are trying to get into some of the most prestigious schools with their marquee departments. Waterloo Engineering, just pick one, whatever, UT Law. So anyway, that one's on the radar too if you'd like to take it on. In addition, a couple of the people who have sent me emails about the prom issue also wonder about the lack of competitive sports in some schools. And I know it's not the be-all and end-all, but we're talking about physical health. We're talking about life skills that are learned through sports. It's very real. Playing for the name on the front of the jersey, not for the name on the back of the jersey. The old classic cliches that we use there, but you want to take it on? And I'm a bit surprised. Like, I never know what topics are going to pique people's interest. You know, some days it's the big stories of the day. Some days it's the possibility to be able to have a beer at Cineplex. And every call's about that. But I don't think anybody's called about the fact that there may indeed be a court ruling that sees some 33 schools in the region uh, possibly up for sale. Now, they're protected in the Schools Act as of now, saying that after the denominational system went away and the Schools Act was amended in the, somewhere in the 90s, is that as long as these buildings were used for an educational purpose, they were offhand. They were, uh, you couldn't touch them. That may not be the case after it goes through the courts or the province might have to cut a check to maintain control of all of these schools. A little bit surprised that it hasn't caught the attention of any callers, but anyway, that's up to you. And also, talking about in schools, and some people this gets them going, is, you know, some life skill stuff and, yes, some public health stuff, including sexual education. We spoke with Gerard Yetman from the AIDS Committee yesterday. Yesterday was World AIDS Day. But now there's been a real slowdown in getting some tested, tests for sexually transmitted infections. It's better to know you have it because most of them are very treatable. So now you're going to be able to go to some select pharmacies for this testing, whether it be for HIV, hepatitis C, syphilis, and again, with so many people unable to see a family doctor, this is a really important offering. People are always encouraged to get tested, right? And if it can be treated, then it's better to know. Three pharmacies in western Newfoundland are participating, two in central, six in the eastern region. At this moment, no pharmacies in Labrador, but Dr. Debbie Kelly is working towards seeing that change. She's the lead on this particular effort to have the testing available in a pharmacy. And again, with the children's acetaminophen and ibuprofen, coughing or cold and flu medications, some people are reporting being able to find it, some not. Had a uh, friend of mine last night on Twitter saying, can you possibly f uh, help direct me to where I can find some of this medicine? One of my... Actually, someone in my family was able to find some, but if you have some tips about where you're seeing it, making it easier to get it, that would be helpful, I would imagine, to many listening to the show. This morning, okay. Now, healthcare. There's, of course, going to be no end to the type of conversations we can have regarding healthcare, but I think the overwhelming theme, and it's the two words that have been used so often, it's becoming a little bit exhausting, but they're critically important recruitment and retention. So the story yesterday about the fact that six respiratory therapists in Eastern Health have quit since September, leaving a big hole and huge caseload for these resp respiratory therapists, you know, it's just one other example in healthcare where we have an issue, where we have a problem. For these particular professionals, they're the lowest paid in the country. But most importantly, that the issue that came out of that story, for me anyway, was the fact that we are not ahead of the game. We have a captive audience. They're being trained in facilities and in schools in this province. And if we know we have a shortage of one professional uh, or discipline or another and potential uh, shortages in the future, 
How and why we are not the first representatives at the recruitment table is beyond me. Generally speaking, apparently, the province waits until January to conduct this recruitment and eventual retention plan or program with these students. Now they're going to accelerate it, given the fact that now we know that Nova Scotia was here dangling a massive carrot in front of these students, and you know full well some of them have taken the option to say, I'll, I'm in. I'm in. $10,000 signing bonus being offered by Nova Scotia. Relocation assistance. Full-time employment. 20% more in the form of pay for these professionals. And now we're accelerating our plan. We've just got to change our tune here. Day one, you begin the recruitment and retention with every healthcare professional in any training setting in the province. How can, why is that not the process? Then they go on to say that the province is going to be offering a $10,000 bursary and full-time employment if you sign a two-year service contract. And again, we're told that that's not appropriate, doesn't work, but apparently works for this particular discipline. But that one just, I don't, I don't understand it. How are we not out in front? They're going to school here. Many of them are probably from here. And yet, we had to chase behind Nova Scotia. Oh, my. And if anybody understands a little bit more about what's going on with the ongoing process to amalgamate all four regional health authorities into one, which will become a behemoth, not to say it might be an unwieldy behemoth, but certainly a massive organization, it can be done. One of the big questions will be, where are all these jobs? And that's important. You know, to be boots on the ground, whether it be in Labrador, Grenfell, and or on the West Coast, and or central, and or east, you can't have all the jobs centralized, for instance, in St. John's. It just won't work for so many people in the province, but that's ongoing. Okay. Again, I never know what's going to pique your interest. Businessman, billionaire, John Risley, when asked about the fact that he gave three Stephenville town councillors and a town manager a Tony flight home on his private Bombardier BD 700-1810 ultra-long-distance jet, he says it's really no big deal. He says, do I think it's a big story? No, I don't. I had empty seats on the plane. The airplane was flying back with those empty seats. It doesn't cost me one extra cent to put a bum in that seat. But whether it be a conflict of interest and or completely unacceptable based on codes of conduct, you know, the, the reactions are as severe as they are, should all resign to whatever. Importantly, the municipalities have until the 1st of March of next year to adopt their own code of conduct. And up until then, if they are not operating with their own code of conduct, they have to abide by the municipal code of conduct as put forward by the province. If that's the case, and it is, and Stephenville does not have their code of conduct in place, what does the minister responsible think of this issue? Because Mayor Rose and others in Stephenville say they're 100% comfortable with it. Some people think it's a distinct and obvious conflict of interest and accepting a gift which is not available. So part of the section, and this is some of the comments coming from uh, political science professor Russell Williams over at Munn. Councillors are being prohibited from accepting gifts, favors, or free and discount services from any individual, vendor, contract, or others which could reasonably be perceived to show undue favor, bias, or disadvantage to any individual or organization or could reasonably be perceived to place the councillor in a conflict of interest. It appears so. The only question I would have is Stephenville is already all in. If we're talking only about World Energy GH2, they've signed the Memorandum of Understanding. They're in. They're quite bullish and optimistic about the opportunities that it'll present in their area. So are there other files 
between Mr. Risley or any business he's involved with and the town of Stephenville? Because Stephenville doesn't have any authority when we talk about environmental assessments and what have you. So if you want to take that on, we can do it. Mr. Risley thinks it's no big deal. Neither does the mayor, but maybe you do. What a shakeup in the fishery, uh, the fishing industry the last several days or weeks. Derek Butler gone from the Association of Seafood Producers, and then kind of out of nowhere yesterday, the FFAW president, Keith Sullivan, steps down. 18 years at the union, 8 as the president. No real reason offered, and I don't think Mr. Sullivan owes me any answers on why he's deciding to leave and take on other opportunities in this world. But that is a big shakeup. I mean, it's been a long time. So let's see here. Ace and Earl McCurdy was the president for 21 years. So just short of 30 years were two gentlemen at the helm of that pretty important uh, industry representing the inshore and some offshore harvesters and some plant workers. The fishery is more valuable than ever. Over a billion dollars in landed value in the last couple of years. So it seems to be in reasonably good shape, although, uh, yes, I know, there's always, always, always going to be problems, especially for inshore harvesters. So, again, what does that shakeup mean? Curiously, it didn't take jig time for the executive board at the FFAW, and this is their right, to endorse one person to replace Mr. Sullivan, and that would be Greg Pretty. Greg Pretty has been around that union for a long time. Apparently, it goes all the way back to the days of Richard Cashin. At the moment, Mr. Pretty is the union's industrial, retail, and offshore director. Members will have an opportunity to vote. The formal nomination period for president opens on the 15th of December, closed on the 29th of December, election set for early January. Big shakeups in the fishery. Something you want to take on? We can do it. And if you heard the show yesterday, we had a heartbreaking call with a lady who her mother fell prey to what people call catfishing, people basically lying to you, pledging their love, all in return for your hard-earned money. We've got to be so careful. Around every digital corner is an evil person like this person who built this poor woman out of everything. Had to sell her house. She's out on the 7th of December. The family doesn't know what's next for their beloved mother. I guess it could happen to anybody. So that type of conversation, probably pretty important. Oh, boy. Then there's this uh, lady sent me a note yesterday with another scan that's circulating. They uh, they call you. They say that they're calling from Bell. You can get a 40% off your bill. All they're trying to do is get your credit card information. So when it feels and sounds too good to be true, it always is. So even if you get a call and you think maybe it is Bell because they're able to spoof the number and it comes up as a recognizable number or even says Bell, if the, if the deal is available, just call them back. You know, see the number on your bill, call them to see if you can avail of any special opportunities or offers. But don't fall for that one either because all they want is your credit card info. And all of that is enough to give you heartburn. And I say that as a segue to the fact where Tums is a product I use. I get it every now and then. But apparently now there's a recall of some Tom's Peppermint Regular Strength tablets. It could be a problem, apparently. Some of them contain fragments of fiberglass, paper, aluminum foil. It might not be a big deal for some, but it could be for others. All right. So look at your pack of Tom's. And the packaging is awful anyway. It's almost impossible to open it without Tom's flying everywhere. Uh, they were distributed across Canada starting on October 25th of 2022. The lot number is long. I'm not going to bother. But it expires on uh, August of 2027. So if you have these, throw them in the garbage. Unfortunately, I don't know. I don't imagine you're going to get a rebate or anything from GlaxoSmithKline Consumer Healthcare. But anyway, the recall on those tums, so don't take them. All right, positive note. 
This weekend, of course, there was a weather event or weather issue last week, but the downtown St. John's Christmas Parade is going to happen on Sunday beginning at 12 noon. If possible, please bring along a non-perishable food item. Also, if you can, to make a monetary donation, Newfoundland Power will be collecting the money, and they're going to match your donation up to the, the tune of $15,000. So enjoy the parade, and please bring along either a non-perishable or a loony, toony, or the like to flick in the hat. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineatvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us begin on line number one at the top of the board. Say good morning to the president of the Newfoundland Labrador Wildlife Federation. That's Andrew Buzan. Andrew, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How's it going today? Not so bad so far. How, how about you? I'm doing all right. I, uh, I'm calling here today to, uh, to talk about the firearm ban that came out on the 17th of November. It's on Bill C-21. And it's the amendments that are coming in, which is, um, we'll just say, ruffling a lot of feathers for firearms owners across the country lately. No doubt about it. Um, it is. But what I, like, and I don't own a firearm, so I'm not the right person to speak from any position of authority on it. But every time there's any discussion about guns, and I get it when the pushback is, we need to focus on the border because the handguns being illegally smuggled are the issue with public health and public safety. There's, and that's absolutely true, and I agree with that 100%. But every time we talk about guns, the law-abiding gun owner, the hunter or what have you, regardless of what the proposal is, people just are saying no. No matter what it is, what it includes, any amendments, any adjustments, any further controls, people just say no. So where are we legitimately and practically speaking with Bill 21? Well, first, I'll 100% agree, uh, illegal firearms, smugglers, organized crime. I mean, that is the top of the list right there. Um, one thing you're not going to hear law-abiding gun owners across the country uh, argue against are checks for mental health, you know, people that have dealt violent crimes, you know. Like, like People have to understand that if you do own a firearm in Canada, that you're checked every day like the rcmp runs you through the system every day like i've got non-restricted firearms license and a restricted firearms license every day the rcmp are doing a background check on me to make sure that nothing's happened that will would be a red flag that says this guy's not allowed to have firearm anymore we need to go confiscate his firearms so that's just another another one to add on top of what you're what you've what you've highlighted here today but like just to give this, I mean, this is a, a big topic. Obviously, you're not we're not going to be able to cover, you know, all the aspects of this. You know, we'll just have a a logical and reasonable approach and discussion about this. You know, just to, to highlight the key key elements of what we're talking about, a little background information. Um, you know, we've got time to do it. So, so this bill that the federal government just put out, you know, Bill C21, it's it's responsible for the the legislative policy you know, regulatory regu- uh, requirements for firearms in Canada. So. Basically, it's heralded as a crime-fighting public safety policy, you know, but realistically what it is, it's, it's targeting legally, you know, uh, law-abiding Canadian citizens who legally own their firearms, okay? Um, now, there's like over 2, 2.3 million Canadians, you know, who, who own firearms in Canada. Now, every one of those people, in the, those individuals, they have to go through mandatory firearms safety training okay this is this is provided through the rcmp canadian firearms program 
and and they're vetted by RCMP every day, like I said. So they need to have... Um, but what does vetted every day mean? Like, if, once I get what? vetted, just one second, you know, vetted every day, I'm not sure what that actually means because once you get vetted and you have your license, how frequently or how... What's the timeline for being vetted again or checked in on again? Because once I have it, I can be law-abiding when I initially get my license, but at some point down the road... I might not be as abiding of the law as I was the day I got my firearm and my license. So what does every day mean? That's the RCMP's continuous eligibility screening program. And that is through the RCMP. They do it every day. So if it, just say you broke the law tomorrow or you were charged with some violence, assault or whatever, battery, whatever it might be. Okay. Immediately, the RCMP is going to look at you and they're going to be like, okay, he has a firearm. Okay, well, we need to do something about this. So, I mean, that's that's one section of it, but... You know, if you're in that category and you're, you know, you're violence, you've been arrested or something like that. Yeah, most likely you're not going to be able to have your firearms anymore. And that's a lot. That's reasonable. You know, I think everyone can agree with that. Yeah, OK. Uh, if you're a threat to society, you know what? You shouldn't have firearms. OK, if your mental health is out of sorts and, you know, you could harm somebody or yourself. You know what? You shouldn't have your firearms. I think everyone can agree on that. But uh, what you have to keep in mind here is the vast majority of firearms owners in this country will will say that their main reason for owning a firearm is hunting, okay? Like, just for instance, in this province, okay, there's over 70,000 big game hunters in this province, all right? And, it's, and then many non-resident hunters who travel to the province, whether from the rest of the country or, uh, or internationally, you know, we're being targeted here uh, for our legitimate tools that we use for hunting. And in some case, some of these cases, these could just be family heirlooms that are passed down over generations, right? You know, guns that have been in family for over 70, 80 years. Now, this does not do anything to the crime rate in the country by banning these. Like, the, this amendment essentially is more or less disrespecting the entire hunting and sports shooting community, and it's, it's looking at banning all center-fire semi-automatic uh, rifles in, in the country and shotguns. So any, any variance, this is some of the language that's, that's coming out in this text is what you really need to focus on, the legal aspect of it. And what, what the government defines as some of this language. So they're banning these firearms not based on their capacities, on their capabilities, on what they can do, but how they look as well. So it's not simply, oh, they can just you know shoot multiple rounds out. It's how they look. Do they look like another firearm that is a semi-automatic rifle? Now, there's examples of that too, but... I'll just put put this out there. There has been zero evidence provided by the federal government of Canada that proves that firearm bans reduce violent crimes, robberies, and organized crime. Okay, if the federal government needs the evidence on this, maybe they should look this up and look to other jurisdictions that have implemented bans and gain the statistics from them. And I'd probably point to the United Kingdom, like England and Wales, as well as over in Australia. Look at their crime levels before and look at their crime levels after their firearms ban. You'll, it was surprising to both of them as well to have unexpected results because they actually saw increases in violent crimes and robberies in the years to follow. And now, But, but, not, no, but not gun up. crimes. But not gun crimes and mass shootings and all the things that we see. And some of this seeps into our psyche from south of the border. I, I understand that, and I know how that factors in here. But where they've done more and intensive uh, firearm bans, the incident of deaths and homicides with firearms, mass shootings and otherwise, dropped dramatically to the point where they're almost non-existent. 
you need to look at the statistics for I, Australia. I, I have looked at the UK. I was just in the UK, and that was one of the things that was actually being bandied about. As you know, was Johnson was stepping down. I was actually there in London the day he stepped down. The gun control conversation is still ongoing in that country. There's still active you know, NRA type organizations. But mass shootings, homicides with firearms is so low, it's a blip on the radar compared to, and I'm not saying that's an issue in this country, even though the homicide rate is up, but that's mostly to do with violent gangs. But it, gun control does work. You know, the ultimate question for me is when I hear from like the government of Alberta, they're the least helpful group on the face of the earth. They said ban legal firearm ownership altogether is what the government is doing, when that's just patently not true. And some of the firearms that are being banned, there's a compensation, a buyback program. It's going to cost us about a billion dollars. So the question would be, with the weapons that people currently have and like and want to use, isn't there a replacement that is not being banned, like a bolt action? Well, first of all, on, on just back to those stats, Australia's stats after they banned the firearms, the homicide rate actually increased. So that's just put that out there. If you want to do some research on that, I, I can. I know that because I've read that in reports. Gun-related violence. But it's a different homicide, thing. Homicide. I'm just saying it's crime. That's that's what this is heralded as: public safety, bringing down crime. You know, it, 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 that's the main point of this. But anyway, just examples here of firearms in that list. So there's, I think it's about over, it's over 300 pages. I think it's 309 pages of firearms that are listed. Okay, there's two parts to this that you can dissect on the list, the classification, and then the G4 amendments, which is the section that includes the uh, the firearms that are not currently set out or, uh, or written in the first section. So it's looking at the variant of firearms, Marles. And I'll just give you a good example. Okay, so the Ruger number one is in this bill. Okay, it talks about. Uh, the, the the firearm capacity for guns and 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 what they can produce or exceed for ten thousand joules of energy. For people that that don't know what what joules are, a refresher in physics, I guess it's a it's a, a joule of energy is essentially amount of energy is exerted through a force of one newton applied over of a displacement of meter. It's like J equals kg times uh, meter squared over second squared. If you know for a refresher course, I know what it is. Yeah. If you if you look like for instance, if you took the barrel off the Ruger one and you change that barrel, you can actually exceed 10,000 joules. Now, this is a single-shot rifle that has been used, I think it was in the 60s when this came out. Does that sound like a semi-automatic rifle? A single-shot rifle now, okay? So I'm just giving you one example. Now, another example I can give you is the Weather Weather Mark 5, okay? This is a bolt-action rifle now. You have to physically move your bolt back and forth to reload this. This is not a semi-automatic rifle. However... The language that's used to define designed on the firearm. They're not looking at the models of the firearm. They're looking at the design for the magazine cartridge. Okay, so what this essentially means is, is that if they can get find a way, just say it was made in the United States, okay, and you bought it, and in Canada you can only get five cartridges, five rounds, five bullets that you can put in that. But if someone in the States made one that can have six, all of a sudden, nope, there's a chance that six rounds can go in this. We're going to have to ban it. Now, do you see the logic here in this? This is a bolt-action rifle. Now, that, now, I mean, that was in the 50s when this rifle came out. Your grandfather could have had this rifle and give it to you, right? could be in, you know, do you see the logic where I'm coming from? I know. From I, I think this? everyone understands the point you're making. And the amendment uh, was 478 pages. I just remember that because I read it yesterday. I'm thinking, this is a problem with some government bills. They're so heavy and dense that it's hard to wrap your mind around, especially for someone like me who's not familiar with these firearms. So, okay, 
again, the question will be, so I'm not allowed to have whatever weapons you just described or firearms you just described, uh, but I am allowed to have completely useful firearms for hunting continuing into the future for licensed, vetted gun owners, right? Uh, that is questionable for right now. That's questionable. Given, like I said, this variant aspect of it. So if you took every firearm that's ever been made and said, oh, well, geez, I wonder if I can make myself a cartridge that can fit one extra bullet in the five. All of a sudden, the government's like, well, if that's possible, then maybe we should ban this. So, like, there actually can ban millions of firearms, like hundreds of thousands, like all different types of models. The only ones that I can foresee that they're not going to ban are break open. So, like, the shotguns, I don't know if you've ever seen them, like, they literally break in half, firearms break in half. That one right there, I don't think they're going to be able to do it, but I think for the 10,000 joules on the barrel, I think they might even be able to. But I'm just going to highlight something you brought up there not long ago. Just very quickly, because I do have to go, Andrew, but go ahead. on On the buyback scenario. So, in this new amendment for these firearms, there's nothing mentioned there on buybacks, okay? There's nothing there on grandfathering on some of these old rifles, whether you're a collector or not. And it looks like they're going to confiscate them. That's from what I can see because there's nothing other, nothing else there that indicates otherwise. Now, some of this stuff here, like you can look at a quote from, from the federal government as well as from the prime minister himself a number of years ago. He said, we're focused on evidence-based policy. As far as I'm concerned, they did not do their due diligence here. Here They did not do the, the right work. They have not consulted anybody. There's been nobody that's been able to discuss this bill. There's been no witnesses that are brought forward from in, for the government to talk to, to understand what's going on here, and to get to the bottom of it, and, and just have a, a, a debate about it. I mean, at the very minimum, what we can do is have a dialogue, discuss this, talk about these issues, you know, see this overreaching because that's what they're doing. They're going after these firearms. You know, two years ago, when this 1500 list of firearms came out, people said, oh, it's just ones that look like semi automatic. It's just the scary looking guns. Then the handgun ban came out. And I mean, two years ago, I told people they're going to come for rifles and shotguns next. People rolled their eyes. Here we are rifles and shotguns on the table. Even if your old, your old grandfather's rifle, it's on the table to be taken, Patty. And these are law abiding gun owners. And you know what? We respect the law. We've gone through the safety training. I think this is just pure disrespect to the firearms community in Canada. Okay. And I think people need to have a logical and reasonable understanding of what's unfolding. And hopefully, you know, common sense will prevail in the end. The politicians pushing back the hardest on this are also the ones saying that it's going to cost a billion dollars. So the confiscation is... What? Pardon me? going to cost a lot more. It might. It might, Andrew. I don't know. But they say confiscation via federal buyback. And that's the politicians who hate this particular amendment on Bill 21. So they're the ones offering those numbers. They're the ones talking about the buyback uh, more forcefully than the government is. I have no problem with the handgun ban, personally. Uh, Again, I'm not a firearm owner. I don't pretend to know the ins and the outs and the different models and what they're uh, capable of. I don't. But I think Canadians, by and large, are on side with logical verifiable that you can back up and understand further gun control in the country. Does this go too far? Maybe so. I really don't know. But if there's a, a, a firearm available after whatever's banned for people to hunt their ducks and their big game and waterfowl of any type, if that's still available, then we're getting ourselves into a very American-like conversation. Last question for me, because this is the one that drives me around the bend, is that I see people on my Twitter threads and stuff about this saying too, that 
what the rationale is to come after your guns so that you won't have an option to fight back, which in essence basically says, I'm willing to fight the government with my weapon. You know, doesn't that make the conversation, you know, unwieldy right from the get-go when the whole thought is that we're going to be oppressed because we can't shoot the cops and shoot the military and shoot the politicians? Doesn't that make this conversation extremely, not only difficult, but sometimes stupid? Okay, well, okay, I've, I've said this many times. I'll say it again here today. You cannot compare any other country on the planet to the United States of America, okay? They are... But who did? They, I was just going to say they're in exceptional places, but they talk about the Second Amendment. They talk about the, the right to bear arms, to fight the government, tyrannical governments, and all this. Like, that is enshrined in their Constitution. They will never fix that problem. They will never deal with the Second Amendment. I'm pretty sure they'll go to civil war before they deal with yeah, it. Yeah, because they just are um, the least sensible people it, around. It's, uh, I'm, I'm just saying, there's over 300 million firearms in the United States. You know, like, the smuggling across the borders, getting back and forth, illegal crimes, the amount of crimes that are committed with illegal firearms, the people without firearms, like, like you're not going to stop it, Patty. Like, that's the point here. All these people, these, these over 2.3 million people that have firearms in the country, have done the safety course, they know the rules and regulations, they got it for a reason. Like, all these criminals that are just smuggling guns across, right across the border, all these homicides, like, it's going to have zero impact on these people. If anything, it's going to embolden them to maybe do bad, more bad stuff because no one, they know no one has a firearm. And that's the case for at least Australia, is what I read, on their crime rates. After. But, but fighting the government, that's, I mean, that's ridiculous. But, that but that's where the conversation that. goes, which is why it's almost impossible to have a conversation about guns. It really it, is. And, you know, there's, uh, like, yeah, I've, I've had a lot of unreasonable people over the years argue with me over some of this stuff. And, you know, you just, you just need to lay it out and highlight the key aspects of it. Okay, hunting, vast okay. majority of what officers want it for. You Andrew. know, there's sports shooters, there's farmers dealing with pests and stuff. Then there's people that want it for collectors. And then there's there's small group of people in the country, yes, that do want it for protection. But the vast majority will claim that they want it for hunting purposes, period. Understood. Andrew, I'm really late for the break, but I appreciate your time. Thanks for this this morning. You're you're welcome, Patty. Um, I hope I hope I you know, put some information out there to the public or yourself just to highlight some of this and not to not to get into a big kerfuffle and, and, and giant headache over it. You know, like I said, logical and reasonable approach. You know, we need to have dialogues on this stuff. You know, we need to be able to exchange information back and forth with in a reasonable way with evidence-based policy. But but thanks for taking my call, Patty. I hope you have a great day. Very same to you. Thank you. All right. Okay, Take bye-bye. Bye-bye. Andrew Bruzan is the president of the NL Wildlife Federation. Quick before we go, you want me to take this, Dave? Line two, caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Can you hear me? I can. I'm pulled over on the side of the road here. Jeez, what a way to start off today. Um, I just got up that time by to go to work and uh, go out and fire up on the rigs at the driveway there. I said, geez, what's the forward edge to? So I'm back in the house. I said to the young fella, did uh, did your girlfriend take a loan to the Ford Edge last night? No big deal, you know. No. Then he jumped up. Um, no, I said, well, but she's not in the driveway. Said, oh, my God, I'm mighty. And she's not in the driveway. And she was wedged in between two vehicles. I live on the main road in the grocer. Wedged in between two vehicles. Uh, how bold, eh? How, how, like, I mean, she's an old rig. She's a uh, wine color. Not red, but wine color, Ford Edge. Uh, me, me tools in the back of it. And just gone. Now, I mean, like, yes, I, the keys are in us. Whether it's under a mat or whether it's on the dash or whether I left it, whether I left it running, it doesn't matter. You're not supposed to steal. <laughs> you know, 
But I just want to put it out in the air just in case someone sees the wine color Ford Edge going around. A couple of little bangs on her here and there. There's no insurance. Yes, there is insurance on it, but just the basic insurance. You know, like the old rig is paid for, and she's a fine old rig. And there's a reward. You know, like a Mimi Tools and everything. Right? It's just, if anyone sees her going around today or something, like uh, it was last night, I don't know, but after dark, I suppose. Like, I mean, I lay down 8 or 9 o'clock and got this morning, she's not in the driveway. What do you do, man? What do you do? A couple of my buddies just had a vehicle stolen too, and never to be recovered. So give us a so it's white edge, the license plate number, no, whatever. No, 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 wine, a wine color. Not wine, oh, sir. Okay, a wine color. I don't know to play it offhand, but a few vehicles in the driveway. I don't know to play it offhand. And, you know, a couple of little bangs on her here and there, and then and uh, 2013. I don't know. I just used by Pity you can't get these people in action, man. There's a really pity you can't get them in action. Understood. Yeah, I'd be furious myself. And one of my best buddies, his truck stolen right out of the bloody driveway as well. So keep your eyes peeled for 2013 Ford Edge wine in color. Hopefully you get oh, it back. What? Thanks, Fred. Have a nice day, man. You yeah. too, buddy. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Deputy Mayor of the City of St. John's. That's Sheila O'Leary. Deputy Mayor O'Leary, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I uh, just wanted to uh, see if I could get a moment uh, to talk about something positive about lights and the festive season that's coming up. Uh, the uh, city of St. John's is going to be ringing in the holiday season with the Festival of Music and Lights in Barring Park. This is our 21st annual Music and Lights celebration. So, uh, uh, Patty, I, I'm sure that you've been over there, but uh, it's absolutely gorgeous in Barring Park. And um, with all the lights and everything set up. And, of course, we've got lots of entertainment as well, too. So uh, just uh, we've got some feature performers, uh, Ian Foster, Nancy Hines, Boogie Babes, Alison Walsh and Jake Greening, who are going to be uh, performing. Uh, it's from five to seven on Saturday. And we're certainly inviting people, as many are, to bring a non-perishable food item for the Community Share, uh, Food Sharing Association. Bring a reusable mug for the free hot chocolate. Bring a flashlight, a personal light. And there's wheelchair accessible viewing area there as well, too, in the parking lot near the duck pond. So uh, it's really a, a great way to bring in the season. And uh, it's just gorgeous in Barring Park, honestly. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to let you and your listeners know. I'm glad you did. I've been there several times for it. It's it's beautiful. It really is. Between that and the Lantern Festival in uh, Victoria Park. How is that jumping out of my mind all of a sudden? Yeah. Oh no! This is in yeah. This is in Bowering Park. No, I was just Park. saying between that and the Lantern Festival, probably the two most spectacular visual oh. events that we have in the city throughout the course of the Absolutely. year. Absolutely. So, so that's a good one. And Sheila, you mentioned a positive story on lights. Let's talk about a negative one. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm apt to do. <laughs> okay. This is Absolutely. the wicked bright lights down in the outer battery. I had to see it for myself, and they are obscene. They really are. And to give folks some idea about just how bright they are, they're 20,000 lumens each. That's 20 times more bright than the average security light. People in the area say it's basically harassment. There's been criminal charges filed against Colin May, who's the man who installed these. And despite the criminal charges, he still has the light going. They say there's issues with insomnia, uh, disruption to the circadian rhythm, all these types of things. But they are really something. I see it doesn't break any bylaws, but they are being... They're being harassed with the light. If it was me, I'd be just as mad as the residents. 
I'm, uh, you know what, I'm very frustrated and I empathise greatly with the, the citizens as well too and I've been very vocal about that. I've uh, been dealing with some of the concerns of the uh, the local residents and you're right, there are no uh, existing uh, regulations regarding the use of bright lights in residential properties in the city, which uh, to me, uh, and I'm only speaking for myself, uh, I find that very problematic. Uh, we're in a growing city uh, density, of course, like that, where people are living right on top of each other. We have to have some sort of uh, respectful kind of uh, capability to uh, control uh, how light impacts people and their peaceful existence. So I know that um, certainly there are other cities that, um, um, you know, have uh, bylaws in place. But we, uh, you know, first of all, we need our council to get behind uh the uh, you know resource to go out there and do the research and uh, and have a look at this. Um, you know there haven't been historically a lot of uh, at least from my vantage point um, of complaints to the city about lighting, but I think that this is something that we're going to see more and more of certainly as we are a growing city. So uh, I have a huge empathy for the residents. Um, we're we're going to be meeting with them. Uh, some of the, uh, you know, a select uh, representation, certainly some of, um, you know, the mayor, myself and uh, the ward councillor and selected staff, uh, appropriate staff are going to meet next week. Uh, and that'll be a face to face so that we can hear, you know, quite clearly exactly what all the issues are. And uh, and, uh, you know, my hope. And again, I say personally, this this is for me that uh, we will uh, start the investigation about how we can enact a, a bylaw for uh, for uh, this kind of uh, nuisance lighting uh, that obviously, uh, you know, is starting to occur. I appreciate the time this morning, Deputy Mayor. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much, Patty. And listen, again, Festival of Music Lights, Saturday. Uh, It's a beautiful event to bring in the season from the City of St. John, Saturday, December 3rd at 5 o'clock. Bring a a non-perishable food item. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Deputy Mayor Sheila O'Leary, the City of St. John's. Uh, let's go, line number five. Good morning, Ashley Fitzpatrick. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing? I couldn't be better. How about you? Oh, you know, no complaints. There's no point at this point in the year. There's too much to be asked. Well, <laughs> you could tell that to some <laughs> some people. Uh, Ashley, I'm, I always get just a little tiny bit confused. Are you at Saltwater or Saltwire these days, or are you at All Newfoundland Labrador? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, I was moving around a little bit. I, uh, I'm doing some work right now. I'm with Atlantic Business Magazine. So okay. I really try, I'm trying to do more of the uh, longer form feature work and dig into some things. Uh, it's a bit different than, than the daily turnaround, but uh, it does allow for uh, some some new views, I guess. Yeah, I see your byline in the magazine, which I really appreciate, the Atlantic Business Magazine. I just didn't know if you were full-time at one of the other outlets, but good to have you on the show. You and I exchanged notes yesterday about bi-weekly recycling pickup. You're of the mind that if you move it to once, uh, if you don't, let's see, you give me your position versus me tell you what you think. <laughs> Yeah, well, basically somebody sent a message, and because I, I mentioned on Twitter, I said, you know, the suggestion that was made by one of the callers was that, um, you know, why doesn't Mount Pearl, which uh, does recycling every single week in its pickup, um, why doesn't it move to a biweekly pickup in, in the manner of St. John's or Paradise? And uh, it was one of those things where I, I just chimed in, and I was thinking, you know, from a policy perspective, if the indication or the desire is to go to more recycling, to encourage people to recycle more, that, you know, before that knee-jerk reaction of where can we save money to also take into consideration of that question of, well, does it actually do anything? You know, what what is the difference between 
recycling every week or not. And I'm sure, given, you know, the number of places in the world where recycling is done and, and places that are certainly comparable to here, that you wouldn't even need to do your own study on that. There'd probably be some information pretty close at hand um, if you went looking. And I think for me it was just I like to chime in when I see uh, some of these areas um, where sure. maybe a little bit of pause could 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 uh, inform things, right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, the argument being made by others when they heard the story as well is that, well, if you move it to every two weeks, people might say, well, it's easy enough to throw it in the garbage. I don't have a place to store it. For me, I think if folks who are part of the routine and they're inclined to recycle, they'll find a way to do it. Uh, but, I mean, I can't speak for every household in Mount Pearl how they're going to approach if there's a change in pickup schedule regarding the recycling. But, you know, the caller's point was simply about saving money. And which I can also latch on to because it's coming on the heels of the Paradise budget, seeing an increase in taxes and water and sewer fees, likely going to come to St. John's, which drops on the 12th of December. So I think that was the impetus for his thoughts on saving money. But fair ball. Yeah, and oh, for sure. And it's one of those things, too. It's, it's that question of, you know, what do we want and, and how are we getting there? And I think if you look at just that one point of, of dollars and cents, then yeah, there, there'll probably be some obvious moves to make. But, you know, then there's that broader question of, you know, what do we want to achieve in, in the long term? And I think that between you and me, and the reason that I chime in on these things is because I do feel like it is pretty common here to to maybe um, jump a little too quickly and, and not uh, gather information and make public and, and very clear what your understanding is, say, as, as a government or in governance of why you're going in a certain direction or doing certain things or spending certain dollars. And uh, it's important, I think, to just get that information together and out there and, and everybody on the same page. I'm all. I'm always all about information gathering before decisions are made because you're right, the, the ad hoc work and the knee-jerk stuff, generally speaking, is a mistake. Uh, so that's one thing. And we can talk about recycling uh, till the cows come home. But... I also want to get to the Vital Signs Report. I admit it on the show, I have not had a chance to dig in like I would normally just yet. I will over the weekend, but you were part of it. You were a contributor, you hosted one of the panels. The one news story I did see was basically only about climate change preparation and or some very short notes about forecasting the productivity of the oil industry. What are some of the key takeaways for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the great thing about this report is it really jumps across a whole you know, conglomeration of, of different topics and and ideas. Obviously, the thing that, that most people, I think, around here want to talk about when they think about climate change and, and direct effects um, is the economic side and, and oil and gas. Um, there, was a, there was a graph included there of what we have in the here and now as to our projected oil production, and that's gotten a little bit of attention. The graph doesn't include the Beta Nor project, for instance, um, and I think that obviously everybody's kind of in a, a, a wait and see and, and watching closely for what happens, not just with Beta Nord, but other projects in, in the future. You know, anything that might come up, this idea, I think, that's conveyed in the report is not so much that, you know, here on this graph is exactly where we're going to be at this point in time because the projection is there. I think the point that we were trying to convey with, with this graph is basically to say, look, these things can drop off very quickly. You know, th this change that everybody's been talking about in a kind of an obscure way for quite some time can happen very quickly. And it's not just in that oil and gas section. You know, I think it comes through for a lot of people, and it came through in, in the real world in the past um, year or so, uh, even more so with, with some of these major events that we've seen in the province, you know, the forest fires in Central, the, the you know, immense uh, 
devastation from the storm on the west coast, southwest coast. Um, so yeah, it, it's there's pieces that tie into pretty much what what people are seeing and what we can talk about about what we might potentially see uh, in terms of pressures on economy, society, and the environment uh, generally. That's where that conversation becomes so disjointed, it's hard to know where to start. You know, whether it be people trying to define where the just transition looks like, whether it be about diversification of the economy, whether it be about government's preparation for the possibility for dwindling royalties coming from the oil business. And I guess, like most things, where you stand depends on where you sit. If it's all about climate for you, then it doesn't matter about royalties. It doesn't matter about jobs. It doesn't matter about uh, anything but diversification and a just transition. That's what makes it a complex, but at the same time, a very interesting discussion. Yeah, and the one thing I would say is that for a lot of people, when they hear about some of those complexities, they instantly, you know, the instinct is to switch off, to say, like, well, that is just way too much for me to kind of try and parse through as an individual. Um, and I'm hoping that one of the points that people take away from the discussions that you can view online uh, at the Harris Center website, um, the forecast NL sessions that led up to this report um, on different specific topics, which give you, you know, a much better sense of some of the, the individual discussions happening. But when people start to take all of that in, I hope the one thing they realize is that there are areas where, as an individual or as a community, you can start to affect some change that will be of benefit to yourself and your community in the very near term, you know, in not an obscure way. Um, and I think that that should be a takeaway for everybody. You know, you can talk about, for instance, the electric vehicle numbers globally. Um, the IEA just came out with a report yesterday. They said, you know, one in every eight cars now sold globally is an EV. But that doesn't mean a lot to somebody, you know, sitting in, in central Newfoundland in terms of their decision-making around vehicles. It may, you know, a little bit uh, affect their thinking. But for the most part, they want to know what's happening, you know, closer to home and, and what the discussion is closer to home. But the only way to get to that information and to start really having that understanding is to start gathering that data and start talking to each other and putting it out in a very clear and public fashion. And it's true in pretty much every one of these topics. But the person in central Newfoundland can definitely consider an EV in the same way as somebody, you know, in the middle of the UK and be a part of that movement and get ahead of, of that transition, um, you know, if they have the means to do so. But there are also other opportunities for people who may not have the means to do so to affect change. You know, even just as a community, getting involved in your local town council when the town councils are so strapped right now, have so uh, little input in some instances in some areas, that they could probably really use an extra hand or a little bit of extra expertise in different different fields. Um, and there are means by which we can collectively, say, prepare ourselves for some of the changes happening environmentally in a way that we haven't to date. Well said. Uh, actually, I wish we had more time. I obliterated my first break of the morning, unfortunately. But you're always welcome back on the show. We'll reach out to you again soon. Yeah, no, sounds great. Thanks Th so much. Thanks, Ashley. Bye-bye. Ashley Fitzpatrick is writing with the Atlantic Business Magazine. Time for a break. When we come back, Jasmine's in the queue to talk about children's Tylenol. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jasmine. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Uh, not too bad. My little one is actually sick, so it's been a rough night. Been there. Oh, yeah, it's hard. It is hard. It's it's not only hard with the sleepless business, but the worry that comes with it is what gets me. 
Yes. Um, so I just wanted to let you and I guess other caretakers know I um, I haven't been able to get children's Tylenol anywhere right now. Um, so I actually got to speak to her, my, my child's grandfather, who is a pharmacist. Okay. And he let me know that you can actually use acetaminophen tablets and rounded capsules and cut them accordingly to your child's waist and administer those as crushed, like a crushed powder in some juice in a pinch. He said that's totally okay. Yeah, and my only advice on any of these types of things is get it directly from a trained source like a pharmacist. So you're saying this gentleman is a, a working, an active pharmacist or retired pharmacist? or He's a working pharmacist. Yeah. Yep. That's the only point I ever make on these things because I'm loath to give out health information because I am not a doctor. But yeah, right. the pharmacist, they do have alternatives that they can't suggest to you. So even if you go to the pharmacy and you can't see it on the shelf they may have it behind the shelf uh behind the counter so ask and if they don't have it ask for alternatives and they'll give you some options absolutely that's right so that's good i just wanted the other caretakers know because i didn't know what i was going to do and she had started running a fever so here we are yeah i dave gave me a bit of razz the other day when i said i have a child home who's sick too but my child is 25 <laughs> that's, right. that's right well mine is 20 months so a little bit of a difference yet but there's options out there, and thanks for telling us about this. And also for the listeners, uh, I got an email this morning from a person who said they got children's Tylenol at the medicine shop on Topsail Road a couple of days ago, so there might still be options there if you are on the hunt. That's right, and there's some also at uh, Pharma Choice in Green Tower. They have children's Tylenol. And I also was told that someone bought some at Walmart on Stavanger Drive, so there's some out there. It might be hard to find, and, you know, People don't have a whole lot of time to run all over God's creation looking for children's Tylenol, but when you're in a pinch, ask your pharmacist for some advice, and they absolutely will have some alternatives for you. That's right, Patty. Thank you for everything you do. I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Lisa Marsh. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call again. Uh, I wish I had great news, but I just want to say thank you for providing this platform. I have a couple of points to make this morning. I also want to thank MHA Jim Din for speaking to the issue of my sister Denise and her living situations. Um, I also want to say that uh, Inclusion Canada Newfoundland has come on board in support of this because it's a huge, big issue for people living with disabilities and are aging out, aged out parents, and they're trying to figure out the living arrangements. When once the parents either get sick, uh, go in a hospital, or die, there's there's a problem of trying to figure out where they should go. But I want to point out a couple of things. It was brought to my attention that the United Nations Convention on Rights of, pers of Persons Living with Disabilities, that persons with disabilities have the opportunity to choose their place of residence and where and whom they wish to live on an equal basis with others. They are obligated to live in it. They are not obligated to live in a particular living arrangement. Persons with disabilities have access to a range of in-home, residential, and community support services, including assistance necessary to support their living and inclusion into a community to prevent isolation, segregation from the communities. My sister is 58 years old. She should not be put in a facility if it should come to that because she is not at that level yet that she should need it. She should be able to stay within the community with the supports that we are able to provide. Also, the next point, Patty, I want to make is our own Newfoundland Health Accord, which is questionable because people tell me that they don't abide by it, our own government. But 
On their website, it states, aging in place, keeping people in their homes as long as possible is good for them, their families, and it also takes the burden off our healthcare system and facilities. And that's what we've been saying. I made a promise to my mom on her deathbed, her last breath, I told her that, don't worry, mom, you can go. I will take care of Denise and make sure that she is looked after and, and given the best care possible. And that is the person who is her home care worker, Miriam, who is able to provide the service that I myself am not. And I never dreamed that I would be fighting this fight with government. I thought our government was there to add support and to be able to make this a transition into the next phase of our lives where we could bury our mom, we could mourn, we could heal, and not fight about Denise's safety and security. You ask me what I want for Christmas, anybody? It's that my sister is safe and secure, and I did not dream that this was going to be a battle. And I do want to thank everybody for their support and their emails and anybody who's reached out to help. It's making a difference, and we need our seniors and our disability people protected, and that's what I thought our government was there to help do. just want to offer some context for someone who may have missed the call. Lisa Marsh's sister is Denise Champion. She has a variety of complex needs. She requires 24-hour care, mostly because overnight she has the potential for grand mal seizures. So her home care worker... After the mom died, the home care worker says she's willing to take Denise into her own home. The government is only making an offering of around $30,000 per year, so we never want to boil health care and aging in place to dollars and cents. But that $30,000 will not cut it for the home care worker for every obvious reason. The cost to have Denise now all of a sudden in a long-term care facility where she would be vulnerable, and that's Lisa's number one worry, would cost extraordinary amount of money more than that i think the number you used was two hundred thousand dollars so when we make 200 plus and that was not a number i picked out of my head no no Din's office actually did the research on that i don't understand why government will not do it for way less than that and keep her safer by their own admission they told me she is much safer to be in the care of somebody in their own personal home, then she is, she'll have a better quality life than end up in long-term care. It's safer for everybody. It saves the government money. And I'm told they just don't care. They're going to end up doing it anyway. It, I, I, I'm at a loss, Patty. I don't understand. We talk about dollars and signs and how much the government needs to save money. Here is a prime opportunity. They have an opportunity to look good for my sister. They have an opportunity to say we care. We, put, we elect you officials to be put in place and... We're saving the government money. We're providing a safer measure. We're providing her community access so she's not in a segregation-type lifestyle. It's a win-win, and I, I, I don't get it. Neither do I, but I can tell you, since our first call, it certainly provoked a lot of conversation. I've been talking about aging in place and preparation for the future for a long time, not only based on what the health court says. And at this point, it's simply a recommendation document as opposed to being... Uh, interpreted or enshrined into legislation when much of it probably should and sooner than later. And I don't understand this story either, Lisa, because as you describe it, a win-win-win, it seems like exactly that. It seems like a win for you, for Denise, for her home care worker, for the government, for for public policy going forward. I just cannot wrap my mind around this one. And for all the people who are out there, whether, like Denise is a senior. She's a senior with a disability. She fits both boxes. And so it's a win for everybody in that, in that community. Yeah. And anybody out there, any senior out there that's struggling, we just had 
my husband just had a, an aunt go into a home because she could only get two hours of home care. She's 90 years old. She had to leave her home, go into a home. Yet our government, by their own admission, says that they want people to age appropriately into their homes so that they can be fried. Her mind is excellent. She just couldn't cope anymore. She got two hours a day in home care, and then she got none on the weekends. Like, they talk a great game, but where is the support in place? And we're all going to get there. Like, we are, I'm aging, you're aging, everybody, we're all going to need the support. If we don't speak up now, we're in for a really hard time as we age out in our society as it speaks now. The health care is a mess because people, doctors and respiratory and everybody is leaving in droves because we can't come to terms with what needs to happen for supports in place. Denise is the tip of the iceberg, and if they step up and do the right thing and make this a good news story, keep her protected and keep her safe, it's a win for everybody because people will look at them and say they care about our citizens. We elect them. They tell us they care. Well, show it. Step up to the plate. I asked Premier Fury. Step up to the plate and show the public that you actually care what's going on in our society, that my sister means something to you. She is not only a person with a disability. She is a person first. She is a citizen in this, in this province, and she's under your care like we all are. Step up and do the right thing. I'm calling you out now to say that you're going to stand up for our seniors, our disabled, and everybody else in the community. Lisa, I appreciate the update, even though it's not the one you or I wanted to hear. No. No, so I am seeking support still. People, please step up because it's all going to affect us. So thanks, Patty. I appreciate your time. And when anybody asks for Christmas, which is the happy time of the year, what will make my Christmas happy is to have my sister safe and secure, and the government should be happy because it's saving them money. So everybody wins. Miriam is looking after the person that she wants to be looking after. She's a home care worker. They're like gold out there. You cannot get them. So value what she's doing and give her a fair wage to look after the person who needs her support the most. Thank you, Patty. I will keep this up. I'm going nowhere. My mom, I made a promise as she was taking her last breath because she died in a hospital of COVID and it was horrible and her concern while she was dying was my sister. And I want to make sure that Denise is looked after for the vet, to the best value of her life so that she can enjoy some quality going forward. Thank you again, Patty. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Lisa. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Boy, that story. Uh, quick before we get to the break, as you mentioned, a respiratory therapist, uh, Gordon Percy from the Association of Allied Health Professionals is joining us after the break to talk about exactly that. And for the folks in the Gander region, of course, tis the season. The annual Santa Claus Parade, hosted by the Gander Lions Club and the town of Gander, takes place Saturday, tomorrow the 3rd at 6 p.m. The Rotary Club of Gander will be conducting their annual Christmas food drive at this time to support the two food banks in the Gander area. Members of the Gander Rotary Club will walk in the parade, accept non-perishable food items or monetary donations, cash or check made out to the Gander Rotary to support this worthwhile cause. Thanks to the good folks at the Rotary Club and they're thanking you in advance for your support. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let us go. Line number three, say good morning to the President of Stride and L. That's Dennis Dillon. President Dillon, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you this morning? Top shelf. How about you, Dennis? Good, good. I'm calling uh, because uh, uh, I, I, uh, I want to talk about a little run that we're doing as part of uh, um, uh, trying to help the community and trying to help those less fortunate uh, come this Christmas. Um, a number of years ago, four or five of us sat around a coffee table at Tim Hortons and, and wanted to figure out how we could uh, help those less fortunate. 
and we uh, decided to just uh, buy a, a toy and uh, do a little run and give the toy to the happy tree. Well, that little um, uh, little coffee turned into what we now call is Stride Running NL Toy Run. And uh, thanks to a, a grant from the Trades NL Community Grass, Grassroots Program, um, we're running a, a toy run this Sunday from Boring Park, and uh, we're hoping to um, uh, collect as many toys, uh, gift cards, and donations that we can donate to the Happy Tree um, and help those that are less fortunate. Um, the event takes place Sunday, this Sunday at 8.30 a.m. Um, uh, we're meeting at the Upper Duck Pond in uh, Boring Park at 8.30, and participants have an opportunity to either run or walk 2K, 5K, or 10K. No cash registration. The registration really is just uh, uh, bring a toy, uh, drop it off to us, and uh, we'll donate it to the Happy Tree. I think it's great. Uh, Dennis, how many members have tried it now? So we started with only four or five, but now we've got uh, over 110. Wow, yeah, my wife's in a running group, and I know you're pounding the pavement. How many K are you putting in a week these days, Dennis? Oh, uh, Patty, it, boy, it depends. I'm usually running about 30 or 40 a week. Uh, this is off-season for us now, obviously, in the winter. You know, we're a group that runs a lot during the summer. We still run uh, uh, throughout the winter, uh, but, you know, it's, it's um, um, uh, we just want to make sure that we're uh, having fun. Uh, we call ourselves a social and socially-minded run club. Uh, we do a lot of things like the toy run. We do a lot of, of, of things that just sort of, you know, make us feel good about helping the community, for sure. Ah, good um, on you, Dennis. Nice to speak with you this morning. I look forward to seeing you around soon. Good luck with the toy drive. Absolutely. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All the best, Dennis. All right. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Dennis Dillon, President of Stride NL. Let's go to line number four now and say good morning to the President of the Association of Allied Health Professionals. That's Gord Piercy. Good morning, Gord. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, good to uh, talk to you this morning. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to have you on. Do you prefer Gord or Gordon? You can go with Gord. That's, most people call me Gord. Okay. Welcome to the show, Gord. I've been talking about this for the last few days. Unfortunately, we're picking different healthcare professionals throughout the weeks to talk about the shortages and the reasons why. But inside your group, you represent the respiratory therapists, six of which have quit their jobs in Eastern Health since September. Why? Well, Patty, they, their lived experience right now as employees is horrible on a good day and, and intolerable on a bad day. They're, they're really struggling as a group right now. This is a group that struggled before COVID-19, before we had the pandemic. And let's remember that was a respiratory pandemic, and they were front and center during all of that time, two and a half years of trying to negotiate that and problem solve and look after people during that time. And... Things have gotten no better for them. As a matter of fact, it's actually gotten much worse. The work-life balance issue, you know, when the most recent AGM of Eastern Health was held and the interim CEO said, that's really not part of the conversation. He doesn't understand how that's all of a sudden been a big deal, but it's long been a big deal. So add to the fact that these respiratory therapists are the lowest paid in the country, and then they have caseloads like two of them trying to trying to care for 18 patients in a shift, which you say is a matter of patient safety. Uh, before we go any further, Gord, what exactly does a respiratory therapist do? Is it all about the intubation of patients, or what is their role? Well, Patty, ideally, respiratory therapy should be present right across the healthcare continuum. So there's a role for respiratory therapy in community care, outpatient care, uh, acute care, they, you know, and, and they're critical. They work in the critical care environment, so they're doing post-op care, 
They're responding for people who have uh, heart attacks, uh, strokes, when, especially when there's any piece that's, you know, compromised from a respiratory breathing perspective. Uh, you know, they're in the eMERGE. They're, they're on our medicine units. They're helping managing long-term chronic conditions, COPD, asthma, those types of things. Ideally, when you have a strong complement that's fully staffed, you would be seeing them across the entire sector of healthcare. And unfortunately, because we are so strapped, we are trying to, you know, a lot of our energy and a lot of their efforts have to go into the must-haves right now. And Patty, the scary thing right now is that we're at a dangerous point of them not even being able to do the must-haves. So the critical care, the post-op care, all of those pieces that, uh, that they do. So apparently there's, uh, just in Eastern Health alone, fixed, uh, 56 full-time permanent respiratory therapist positions. Is that the appropriate number, or does that include the six who re- resigned? Or so where are we? With, what would be the number, ideally, on staff at Eastern Health? So uh, interesting point, Patty, because we've had, uh, we have about 56, and, and then we have rural, some rural people as well. Um, and that's another story I could tell you about the, li- the lives that the r- rural respiratory therapists are living as well, because they have a skeleton staff, absolutely. But uh, when we have, you know, when we have about 56 of them in the city here trying to go flat out, um, you know, and then you've got positions vacant, that's a problem. We have a, a small float pool for them as well. Ideally, your float pool would be catching the leaves, the, you know, times when a shift has to be filled. Sadly enough, most of them are already embedded in the permanent schedule. So we have almost no casual or relief. So any vacancies, any sick calls, you know, life happens. People want a little time off, whatever. We have virtually no staff for that. So they're just going full out. We also know, and in conversations that we have had as a union with Eastern Health, we know that there are other areas where they'd like to see additional staffing and have actually held off on creating new positions because, again, the staffing has been so um, tight. One good example of that is the HSCER. We know that they probably should have their own resources in the HSCER. They don't. And, you know, so again, another unit where these staff are getting pushed and pulled. Patty, I mean, I have comments here from the last few days. Our members keep in touch with us, us and keep us informed. So, I mean, I'm, we're getting messages from responding to 20-plus pages from the ER and three critical care units, multiple vented admissions overnight, routine patient care put on the back burner, ran out of cleaned and checked ventilators, having to run back and forth to our department, worked to the best of our ability to prioritize what was most important, but patient safety was severely compromised last night on all levels. None of us got a break at all overnight. We couldn't even get to water or bathroom break. These are the comments we're getting from them. You know, in a a setting where patient safety is paramount, we can't expect anybody in healthcare to be able to perform and to keep patients safe and to execute the role when they're burnt out, overwhelmed, stressed out, and considering leaving. It's just bad for everybody, the professional, the patient, the system, period. How many students, uh, Gordon or Gord, are in the 2023 respiratory therapist class at CNA? I think I, I don't have the exact numbers because again, those people aren't our members until they get hired and 
cross right. the threshold. I think right now it's about nine or ten of them. And I know that, of course, we, we've talked about earlier in the week about how Nova Scotia came in, very organized, well-oiled machine, came in, met with that class, and made them job offers and offered them incentives to come to Nova Scotia. As of, as of what I know right now, Newfoundland hasn't approached them at all. I do believe they're going in next week. I even wonder about the timing of that because it's end of semester and we know that at the end of a, you know, a college or a university term, uh, people get distracted. They're probably doing exams. They're probably trying to finish up uh, this you know, current leg of study. So you know, I, I wonder if the timing is great. It should have happened before, and we can't afford to lose them to another province. Patty, I was to uh, some national meetings there in late October, and I, I, I wonder if Newfoundland, if, if the powers that be here really get this, but other provinces are ramping up. They, you know, we have health professions where there's national and even global shortages, so this is a huge issue. We have people now who we know in other provinces, they're studying collective agreements from other provinces and seeing where their salaries and benefits may be better than another province's, and then they're targeting that province. So let's go get their respiratory therapist, let's go get their psychologist, whatever. That's a coordinated effort that other provinces are now doing. It's scary because we, we, we can't afford to lose anyone. And if you've got other provinces that are going to come in and target Newfoundland and Labrador to come in and poach or harvest uh, our healthcare workers, we're in trouble. We're Absolutely. In trouble. There, there's something wrong with that anyway. On a, in a confederation where we've got provinces and territories pitted against each other, you know, and it's going to be inevitable given the current structure of the system. But you can bet your bottom dollar that some of the nine took up Nova Scotia on their offer. $10,000 signing bonus, relocation assistance, 20% higher pay in that province. It's right there. It's still in Atlantic Canada. You know it worked out. I'd like to get your thoughts on this part of it. The province is going to accelerate their process for trying to retain these graduates by offering the $10,000 bursary, full-time employment, but in exchange for a two-year service contract. Your thoughts on the service agreement? Well, the service agreements, that's been fairly typical through the years. I mean, I started healthcare in the 90s, and we had some of that going on at the time with rehab professionals. So it's fairly standard. But I even wonder if that's going to be enough. And, you know, Patty, we've seen cases, too, where if another province or another jurisdiction wants to recruit these people, we've, I've seen situations where the new employer might say, you know what? We'll pay off your bursary to your former employer and just to get you to come with us. And again, I think the thinking needs to change in this province, especially with our healthcare leadership, that times have changed. And there is a real thinking shift required in how we're going to recruit and retain healthcare professionals. Respiratory therapy right now, Patty, is the one that is bleeding in my group. I've got 25 occupations, and they are the desperate group right now. It is, crit- I, mean, I don't know, we passed critical months ago, I think. Uh, I don't even know. I don't even know. Uh, one of my respiratory therapists this morning used the word dire, and I think that's actually a really, really good word for it. But again, our healthcare leadership needs to wrap their head around the fact that the world is changing. It's going to become more... Uh, competitive, you know, and, and talking about, you know, those incentives and bursaries, Patty, like, out, 
out west, I mean, I think the western provinces, they've been competing for like 20 years. Like, And I think some of them are, you know, we're big and we're rich and we'll take your health professionals. Like that's been going on more in the western provinces for years. I think they probably left Atlantic Canada alone. But again, now there's such shortages and it's so uh, difficult to find these trained people that I don't think anyone's safe right now. And I think Newfoundland and Labrador, because of our pay scales, is particularly vulnerable. Boy, oh boy, Gord, really appreciate the time. These are the kind of conversations we have to have because when we don't, then it kind of takes the pressure off the government. But the shortages across the board, I know there's been a suite of incentives offered, but we've just got to reimagine healthcare. Not only how it's delivered inside clinics and hospitals, but how we recruit and retain professionals. You know, they, of course they go hand in glove, but there's a reimagine required. I know Dr. Megan Hayes has the most difficult job in the province at this moment in time. And so it's incumbent on her and her team and her colleagues to figure this stuff out. We can't wait any longer. We can't see more respiratory therapists leave. We can't see more RNs leave. We can't see more family doctors leave. Social workers, MPs, LPNs, whoever we're talking about, they're all in the fold. Uh, good to have you on the show. I appreciate the time and the information. Thank you very much, Patty. We'll probably be talking again. I look forward to it. Take care. Bye-bye. You too, Gord. Bye-bye. Gord Pierce, he's the president of the Association of Allied Health Professionals. Let's take a break. When we come back, Sean's there. He wants to talk about license plate covers. What about it? We'll find out. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Six, Sean, you're on the air. Hi, Betty. How are you today? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm doing okay. I just want to give you an update on about my little problem here with the license plate cover. I phoned there about uh, three weeks ago. That was my first time ever calling. Right. Well, right. remind okay. the folks about the license plate cover concern before we move on. Okay. Uh, well, a um, uh, police officer had me over. That was in the onside of me in the next lane. And uh, when the traffic went, he uh, put on his lights and came over in my lane and hauled me over. And he asked me, why was I getting hauled over? Or uh, do I know? And I was like, no, I had no idea. I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And apparently he told me it was a, a clear license plate cover over my car, which I bought as with the license plate cover already on it. And uh, he showed, asked me for my license and stuff, and I showed him. And uh, then he told me to step out the car. And at that point, he seemed like he was very agitated. And I didn't know what was going to happen to me. If he was going to put cuffs on me, throw me in the cop car, what, what not. And uh, and he gave me a ticket for $140. So I was like, okay, well, I got a ticket. I got to uh, pay the ticket, think I'm doing the right thing. And then I find out uh, just about a month ago that I got a major conviction on my driver's license because of this. And my insurance went for, uh, $1,500 extra up a year. And I had to, uh, so I had to cancel my insurance with the ones I was with, and they put me uh, with another one, which cost me $1,500 per year. And this conviction is a six-year conviction. And uh, everyone I talked to, insurance companies, uh, women at the police station, uh, motor registration, nobody could give me explain why this is a major conviction and why did I get things so much. And just la uh, last week, I've been calling my insurance company back, and 
leaving messages and trying to get a letter or trying to get some uh, someone to explain this all to me. And no, and I left three or four messages now, and nobody seems to get back to me. But if uh, they want to get hold of me, they got no problem get hold of me. So, is this a criminal conviction or simply a, a violation of the Highway Traffic Act? Uh, not really sure, Patty. Yeah, it can only be the Highway Traffic Act, which gives you a chance to fight it in traffic court, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, maybe. I'm still working on it now. I'm still working at the details, but uh, I still got a few things that I'm going to check out. And I don't know if I could go and get a hearing from the judge or something and tell my story and or get somebody to explain it to me. I, I don't know. I really don't know. And I was told there just last week I was talking to a, a lady. I won't say who it was or whatever, but uh, I was on the phone and talking to this one lady and she, trying to get information, and she said that I'm a reckless driver because I got a clear license plate over my car that I only drive like maybe four times a year, which is a classic car, 92 Camaro. And no, I don't understand. And then everybody else is going around with covers on it. I see it every day, and some people got license plates with their whole lettering uh, peeled off their license plate, and uh, and, you know, like, why did I get so dinged? Why is this a major conviction? And if it's a major conviction, why isn't everybody else getting hauled over? Or why isn't everybody else even asked to take the cover off and go on with the day? Yeah, I think the rules are very much similar to tinted window rules. You know, there's so much darkness that's acceptable or so much tint that's acceptable. And, you know, front windows, front side windows in your vehicle are not supposed to be tinted, all that kind of stuff. But if you have a cover that you can see quite clearly the registration sticker and the letters and numbers on the plate, then I don't know what the problem would be personally. Now, I have seen license plate covers, which are absolutely intended to uh, make it unreadable. They should come off. But something that can be seen clearly through, you know, whether it be somewhat opaque or not, I don't know what the problem is, period, to be honest with you, Steve, uh, Sean. What I would do, though, is just to verify that this is simply a violation of the Highway Traffic Act. And if so, there will be somewhere on your ticket that says to request a court date. You send it in, they send you back a court date, and you'll be able to, to uh, tell your story or fight your case. Right, yeah. Do that much. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I'm still trying to figure it out. Like. <laughs> well, yeah, just ha have a careful look at the ticket. Somewhere near the bottom on the back will say, requesting uh, a court date, and you, all you do is simply fill it out, sign it, send it in, they send you back the required information, and off to the races. Yes, I I, uh, I still got the ticket here at my side here, and uh, like I said, Patty, I'm still working on it and seeing what I could do and just looking for answers, that's all. Yeah, fair enough, and hopefully that, uh, that tip helps, but keep us in the loop. Let me know what goes on, Sean. Okay, thanks, Betty. And I, like, like I said, I got my class one defensive driving courses and a clean record right since uh, I moved back home to Newfoundland in 2011. And I, uh, and I, they told, I had one lady tell me that I was a reckless driver. Like, yeah, I don't know like, what having a cover makes anybody reckless just because. Anyway, yeah. All right, Sean, let us know. Okay, thank you. All the best. Bye bye. All right, uh, break time. When we come back, we're talking carbon tax, and then Jim wants to talk about toxic towns. What are they? I guess Jim will tell us. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Greg, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's Greg Sheaves calling for a Basque. Welcome to the show. Been listening to you for a while, but too busy, I guess, to come and make a call. But anyway, I've been listening to all the news and the government and all their 
rhetoric and stuff that are going on with and foolishness, but I just had to come on and make some comments because, you know, this carbon tax and stuff, it's nothing but a scam. And then to say they're going to turn around and charge extra carbon tax again in the spring, but it's going to be good because Newfoundlanders are all going to get money back. It's going to be better out. Like, why would you collect to turn around to give it back? What makes it a scam? Because what's, you can take all the money in the world and put it on a table, and you're not going to stop global warming. It's been going on for millions of years, and it will continue naturally if we're here or if we're not. The goal is to reduce emissions, Greg. It's not about the money. What's the emissions for? Because they're calling it climate change and global warming. You, you can't, you're, you're not going to stop it. And I'll, Okay, let's look at another You can't example. reduce emissions? You can reduce it, but you're not going to stop global warming or climate change. That's not going to happen. Based on what? Based on what? Okay. Here in Port of Bass, for example, down beyond our elementary school, 200 feet above sea level, there's boulders, 70 tons each. How in the hell did they get there? They got pushed there millions of years ago during the Ice Age, long, long before we ever got here, long, long before we had any emissions. So all of that ice is gone today, and it keeps, it keeps moving further north and further, further south. You know, this ice melt. But look at mixing a drink. The only, the only real gauge here with the emissions world is not the Ice Age. It's the Industrial Age. That's, how, that's the only legitimate measure. You can't include emissions through oil and gas or transportation or agriculture or farming or methane prior to the Industrial Age because none of that makes any sense, right? Yeah, but the thing is, why is this money going to correct it? It won't. Because all it is is another tax grab for the liberals. It's nothing but a job scam because now the government's probably going to hire more people to look after collecting this tax and then hire another group of people to return it. So why do it? Don't even charge the people because all they're doing is driving up the cost of living on everything that we purchase and everything that we need. You know, and then Andrew Fury comes on and saying, oh, we're going to give back every person like $500 you know, they're going to have all this money back and praise themselves up when they are causing the inflation. That's the people who are behind it, you know. What's causing inflation, sorry? The government and the taxes on all this fuel because everything, every commodity that we buy, we need to get it transported, and transports burns fuel. In turn, all of this tax gets back to the backs of the consumer. So... How, you know, how does tractor trailers and stuff manage to keep running without increases? And then they all use it as an excuse. Okay, so Canada Post is going to increase their rates. All because they're the people who drove up the carbon tax. They're the people who are collecting all the taxes. They're the people who are driving up the cost of transportation. I mean, carbon tax in this province is 11 cents a litre. I'm not sure what your point you're attempting to make regarding that and, infla- and, and inflation. Sorry. There shouldn't be any tax on low-carbon tax, Patty, because that's what's driving up our cost. Everything that you buy is is reflected back on the cost of the transportation to get it. Now, some of the chain so, has exemptions. So what would your suggestion be to encourage or to influence a reduction in emissions, regardless of what we're talking about, what industry we're talking about? What, what should be done then? Okay, let's look at emissions and, and look at an example. If you go down south, for example, and you're sitting on the beach on a hot sunny day the first thing you're going to do is put on sunscreen to block those direct rays if a cloud passes over it's so refreshing because it blocks that direct heat 
So now, if you're going to eliminate all of the emissions and pollution that's actually blocking some of the direct rays from the Earth, now the Earth is going to warm up even faster. Something more from the complain about. Oh, you know, the ice, ice is starting to melt even faster up north now. Well, what did you expect? You just blocked all the direct rays of the sun. Well, you never blocked them because you allowed them to come through. Blocking the rays you of know? the sun? What? Yeah. Well, if, if a cloud passes over on a sunny day, yeah. doesn't it cool down? Yeah, but what's that got to do with anything, though? I'm having a difficult time following along here. But the emissions I'm talking about, if there's, if there's some pollution in the air, that's blocking some of the direct rays of the sun to cause the earth to heat up. That's easy to follow, Patty. Not particularly. Easy. Why? Okay, I just explained to you. If a cloud passes over yeah. on a sunny day, yeah. you cool down. You cool down. And so does the earth. Yeah. But if you have crystal clear blue skies, the earth is going to warm up even faster. So then they'll complain, oh, well, the ice is melting even faster. But then again, let's get back to some of this inflation and the sugar tax scam. I went to Walmart the other day. And to buy Crystal Light, the little packets, 10 in a pack, which is usually 250 they got 10 cents a pack put on every packet in that box. So that's $2 tax on a $2.50 purchase. But Crystal Light right on the box is marked zero sugars. Now, how is that a sugar tax? Why are they doing that scam? Well, I'm listening. Well, I don't, I'm not the government. No, no. What do you want me to answer that for? Is, no, but the thing is, Patty, it's a scam because they said it's a sugar tax on sugary drinks when Crystal Light has zero sugar. I think it's been a mess from the onset, which I've said repeatedly, so I'm not sure what to add to that. No, and, and the thing is, is if you're driving the price of everything up that high, eventually it's going to lower sales. When you lower sales, you lower jobs. When you lower jobs, you increase unemployment. When you increase unemployment, you drain the kitty again. Like... But unemployment's at a historic low, though, also, right? It's important to note. Yeah, but why? Because well, people can't afford to buy the things that's being produced because it's overtaxed. Wait, you now, did you, did you just say that employment is low because people can't afford to buy stuff? Yes, a what? lot of it is because, okay, if you've got people that's work, oh, Jesus, Patty, I don't know, I, I, I don't understand or you don't follow some of this when you're an educated person. Now, well, Greg, be mostly because it doesn't make any sense. You just said that yes. unemployment is low because people can't afford to buy stuff. Like, how does that make sense to anybody, oh, including okay. you? Okay, let me take your little slow steps here so you can follow. You can try to condescend to me all you like, but if you can try to square that circle why unemployment is low because people can't buy stuff, I'd be okay. happy I'll, to get walked through it. that one. I'll, I'll explain it right now. You, the last, last week, the lowest time I've ever seen 24 packs of Powerade at Coleman's here in Port of Basque was twelve ninety nine. Then, because the government involvement, you got 24 times 8 for your deposit fee. That's $1.92. Then you got 24 times 20 cents a liter or a bottle for the sugar tax, which is four eighty. Then they turn around and put 15% HST on all of it, which is another two ninety six. And what does that have so to do they, with unemployment? Just listen now. So now you've got nine dollars and sixty-eight cents tax on a twelve ninety-nine purchase. So now down goes the sale of Powerade. So then the company has to put it on special to try to move it out because it's going to be outdated. Once it's outdated and no purchases, now the sales goes down. They don't need to produce. What does that have they to do with unemployment? To, 
when they don't need to produce, they don't need to employ people to do it. Have people lost their jobs in the industry? And again, what does that have to do with national unemployment, the price of a good? If more people are working, now the labor participation rate is an important to factor in. I'll grant you that. But you're saying that unemployment is where it is today because people can't afford to buy stuff. Give me the math and the breakdown on taxes on power rate does not bolster the argument. I'm just giving you an example that it's overtaxed, which lowers sales. If you lower sales, you don't need to produce. If you don't need to produce, you don't need to employ people. Like, I'm just giving you an example on that one issue. You know, it's, it's the same on all kinds of stuff that you buy. If it's overtaxed, and a lot of it is not even being overtaxed because, and, and it's not really inflation because it's gouging. Like, you take, for example, you can go to a store in Port of Ask and pay two fifty for a one-liter juice box in times. You can go to a Dollarama in Corbett or Steve any day of the week and buy it for $1.25, and they're selling make money on it. So is it really inflation, or is it gouging? You know, and like even on, like the taxes on the diesel fuel, I pity the truckers because like I, I'm I'm into construction too. But just to go and buy 150 liters of fuel, which is nothing, like six five gallon cans, and on a 245 dollar purchase, the government is tacking on like 83 dollars and 47 cents tax. Like every time you're trying to move something, they got their fingers in the pie. You know, and and far as I'm concerned, they got us overtaxed. Overtaxed. That's and probably a simple take- argument to make as opposed to however you were conflating clouds which are not made of CO2 and inflation and employment and the cost of goods all in the same breath, which just – and, you know, I know you're going to think that condescending to me as some stupid townie is going to work, but it's not. Um, so it's starting with we're overtaxed. I don't know if there's anyone going to disagree with that, but the other yeah. dots you were attempting to connect has made it a little bit hard to follow. Uh, yeah, but like, here's the government, and I, I spoke to one of the employees at the Walmart and asked her why, and she said, I don't know, the government just sent us a list of stuff that we've got to tax. So is that list available? You know, why is there stuff being taxed with zero sugar? That's the point that bothers me. It's nothing but a money grab. It took a long way to get to that summary point, which makes a lot of sense. You know, we're paying tax on stuff which we were told was exempt. We're paying tax on eggnog, but not on chocolate milk, which has more sugar. So those are fair arguments to make. Uh, it, it was a bit of a windy path to get to that. But overtax and the wildly reckless and disjointed sugar tax, I don't think anyone disagrees with that because it's not even the way they told us it was going to work, let alone the confusion at the 11th hour with retailers, distributors, and customers. Uh, Late for the news, Greg. Hope you have a great weekend and a great holiday season. Thanks a lot. Okay, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Jim, you're on the air. Hi. Are you hearing me, Patty? I'm hearing you, Jim. Thank you for taking my call, by the way. Happy to do it. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I wanted to phone about the CBC series that's on the go now. Uh, I think the first one they did was, uh, well, by the way, the series is called Toxic Towns. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. But that's based on an old novel, right? Well, I'm not sure what it's based on. However, uh, I was, uh, and I'd say a lot of residents of favor were a bit upset when they saw the report. Uh, first of all, uh, to call your town toxic is uh, not very, not a very good image to portray of the town and stuff. 
what the what the report was, I think, trying to do was to discuss the uh, health concerns that a lot of the miners have had over asbestosis and stuff and respiratory problems. And oh, stuff. yes. Okay. So Bayvert miners and the like. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I've, I've, first of all, I want to say that I wish all the miners uh, and their health concerns, I hope, I hope they get something sorted out and it's to their satisfaction. You know, that's the first thing. But they, they made it sound like Bayvert is a, just one big toxic dump. You know, it was a very negative report. And have you ever been to Bayvert, Patty? I have so. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful town. It has beautiful people here, and it's a beautiful town. I moved here in 1980 when the mine was still on the go. And at that time, you on occasion, you did see a little bit of dust on your car or on your windows. Uh, when they started the wet mining process and when the mine closed down, uh, the level of dust in the town is, well, I would say almost non-existent. Um, for five months of the year, for example, the mine is covered with snow, <laughs> so the dust can't blow anyway. Other times the wind is going a different direction or whatever. It's covered you know, when it rains or whatever. And the mine as well is at least four kilometers from the town. So, you know, we, we've got a bit of separation here. And uh, they did mention about some testing that was done in the uh, 90s, I believe. And they said that the dust levels were acceptable at the time. But, you know, listening to to the CBC report, it, 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 it painted a very unattractive picture of what I call a town that I've uh, grown to love. And like I say, I have fantastic friends here and the people in the town are great. You know, we have we have lots of things in this town. It's uh, I think the population is around twelve, thirteen hundred now. And, you know, we have great facilities here. We still have lots of things on the go and stuff like that, that for people. You know, we have uh, there was mention about the roads. Well, they've done road work this summer and the roads are getting better. Not not as good as they could be, but they're getting better. You know, they mentioned that the pool closed, but that pool opened in 1967. It was a centennial pool, and the town, over time, uh, tried to maintain it, but it just after a while, it was the infrastructure was so old that they just couldn't keep it up. But, you know, that's not to say we don't have recreation here. We have playgrounds for children. We have, the, the, we have a stadium that runs. Uh, we've got uh, tennis courts. Uh, the schools have fantastic gyms. The, the new school, by the way, and it's uh, a lot of uh, activity there. So there's, you know, there's walking trails, snowshoe trails, uh, lots of different things to attract people to this area. Um, <laughs> we've got a, a seniors home. We've got businesses here, you know. On, that are on the go. We've got a good water system. Our water, we don't have to boil our water. You know, we've got churches, business groups, volunteer groups, so on and so forth. So when when the report was done, just to call it toxic towns, to me, leaves the wrong impression. Do you understand where I'm coming from? I, I do. And there's not much I can say to it, uh, unfortunately, Jim, because I didn't see it. So I don't yeah. know what it entailed. Uh, the news story associated with it is that I guess the focus was fairly narrow. It was talking about the impact of the mine, whether it be on the uh, environment itself and or the health of the miners. I don't know what to say really to, because had I seen it, I'd be able to engage much more clearly here on this front, but I didn't. But I can understand if I'm a resident or formerly lived in that town and it was painted as nothing but a toxic town, then of course that would be unsettling. I get your point. 
Yeah, like, for example, the mine has been closed for a number of years now, and every year you see more trees growing on the sides of it. Now the main, um, what would they call it, uh, the pile of uh, tailings is, is still, nothing's going to grow on that because it's it's out there. It's But like I say, it's four kilometers out of town. Uh, it doesn't affect the people here, I don't think, at all, you know. Uh, the other thing I thought about it, too, is, you know, like with, with all the things that this town offers, Again, we have volunteer groups, you know, like a brand new seniors home, like I said, businesses, a couple grocery stores, three gas stations and garages, you know, and stuff like this, or two gas stations and three garages and all this sort of thing. You know, uh, there's a lot going on here. And uh, I was just thinking if I was a person trying to come into Bayver or if I was trying to attract a doctor and I had seen that report, if I was trying to uh, attract someone into our uh, uh our um, hospital here, uh, boy, <laughs> you, you know, you, especially if you had a family, you would be wondering, you know, do I want to go to a toxic town? And apparently, according to CBC, there's something like 5,000 sites. I think that's the number they quote it. And they're going to be doing different reports over time. And I just, I just believe it's an unfortunate way to portray the area. If they had separated the mine from the town in the explanation. I think that would have been okay if there's if they had just talked about the uh, miners and their health concerns and the ongoing uh, problems that they face. And like I say, um, all the best to to our former miners and stuff like that, people who are, who are trying to get compensation and stuff. I have no issue with that whatsoever. But calling it a toxic town and then it's centered on Bay Vert, you know, and there's, and it, it just to me comes across as being uh, inaccurate, uh, a negative portrayal of, like I say, a, a town that's well laid out. I mean, like every town, we have uh, problems with our in- infrastructure because of the aging town. You know, uh, we have roads that are uh, not not 100% uh, acceptable, but work is being done on them. And people are trying. People keep their homes up really well. The, 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 the you know, the properties are well kept. The people are very friendly. The, you know, uh, it's just, just a, it's a good town to grow up in. Uh, my wife and I raised three children here, and we uh, we thought they had a fantastic education. We thought they had a, you know, great place to grow up, and so on and so forth. But uh, like I said, when when they call it toxic towns. I mean, how many, how much more damage are they going to do with this report? Uh, you know, over over the next weeks when they show other towns, uh, I, I don't know. It just just came across to me as being understand. Point taken. An inaccurate portrayal of our situation here. You're probably not alone. If I was a resident, I'd be cringing at it as well, I suppose. And yeah. given the fact I didn't see it, I don't know what more to yeah. say to it. But I appreciate you making yeah. time for the show this morning, Jim. Yeah. Okay. And like I said, I'm glad that you took my call because I'm sure there's. I know there's more residents in town who probably felt the, just the just the again the title of the report, toxic towns, was just just not right. If they should have separated the mine situation from the town, because Got there's it. a lot going on here. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call, and you have a great day. You too, Jim. All the best. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, are we taking another one here, Dave? David, are we taking one here before we go to the break, or what? Uh, so you want me to take Paul? Okay, Paul, on line number three, you're on the air. 
Good day, Patty. How are you? Okay. How about you? Good. First time caller here. I was just t- I listened to the gentleman that was speaking there about the carbon deal and the climate change before the break there. <laughs> when I worked in a mine up in northern Canada a few years ago, we dug up a palm tree leaf, actually several, and it was dated 50 million years ago. It wow. was tropical up there, right? So, like, where was who was producing carbon back then and burning diesel and gas and coal-fired plants? Nobody. The world is just, it's just in a big cycle. It just goes one way or the other. And our government is all a big scam. My, that's my, uh, my. Uh, I can understand. Sure, it should be taken on a case-by-case basis with uh, province by province. Sure, you drive into Toronto. I worked in Chicago before, but down to Los Angeles, you drive into these big cities, you can see the smog. But that area should be the place that should be, you know, you know you know, buckled down on for, you know, burning coal-fired plants and vehicles and all this stuff. And another, another thing I was going to say, the other night I was watching the news, and they're going off here in Newfoundland now about this electric car stuff, with the, you know, which is great and, and dandy. The government's trying to do something. But you got Buddy there stood up with the plug-in in one of them boxes, and he might as well have a generator fired down on the parking lot alongside him because where's the power coming from that? It's coming from Holyrood. What does Holyrood burn? Diesel generators. It's just, it's just, I don't know, the government here, and well, I mean, the government in Canada alone is to, they got their heads where they're, they're, they're not, I don't know, they're not on another planet, Patty, is what you already don't understand that, man. There's lots of hydro also in this province, uh, that's for sure, but that's where the, that's where all of these things are intended to work uh, in conjunction. It's not that it's one thing will make a difference or all the difference, is if you try to bring more hydro renewables on, then you get to do away with the Hollywoods of the world, hopefully, and hopefully that's the outcome one of these days. And I've never really quite understood the downside of controlling pollution. I don't think anyone is actually pro-pollution. I mean, air quality kills millions every year. I mean, this is indisputable. So cleaning up the air, and there's only so many ways that can be done. And you're right, just paying a carbon tax at the pump doesn't make the air any cleaner. It's all about market pressures, right? Because what's really the most curious part about all this for me, it's become a a political hot potato. It's not about policy anymore. It's about politics. This was long a conservative-related issue. They talk about the market pressure all the time. The market will make the decisions. Stephen Harper was a carbon tax guy. Now that the liberals have imposed it, all of a sudden it's the stupidest thing on the face of the earth. So we're really falling for the political rhetoric versus policy, what can indeed work. So does the federal uh, liberal carbon tax plan make all the sense in the world? No, not to me. Not to me. But what other mechanisms can indeed influence different decisions, purchasing power, the way that you heat your home, the way that you uh, operate a vehicle, the way industry operates? And I do think we haven't focused enough on the biggest emitters in the country. That's where the biggest pressure should come to bear, not their ability to buy carbon tax credits. They should be forced to reduce emissions, whatever technology, carbon capture, whatever. And there's all kinds of different carbon captures. But we've kind of... We've taken the the lowest hanging fruit. Focus too much on the individual, not enough on the big emitters. That much I've always said, and I've said it out loud, and I'll stand by because I think it's true. So I think there's a way and there's a place for reducing emissions. There's a lot of good comes from it. And, you know, even transitioning away, it doesn't happen tonight. This is going to take half a generation probably for it to be even nearly down the path where people want it to be. At that point, there will be money and jobs in the new sources of power. It's not like all of a sudden every job that people work in the fossil fuel industry will never get another job in this world. That's not how anything's going to work. I mean, we're, we're going to be powering up things. It's going to require manpower and different types of training. So anyway, I'll, your point is accepted. Anyone who makes whatever point on this show is good enough by me. Yeah, 
sir. And in our, just quick there, yeah. Canada has the most amount of boreal forest in the world, in northern Canada. Now, that's a carbon capture thing. Our trees takes in carbon and spits out oxygen. Yeah, I think there's some... There's something to be said for some of the myths associated with old growth forests and how much carbon they actually capture, the types of forests that we have in this country. But you're right. We do well in the tree business, and we're actually talking about planting another billion of them. Exactly. So it's essentially how many tons of carbon we put out in a year, we're probably negative carbon. You know what I mean? If you took them out, if you had some way of studying no. all the best amount of trees we got, you know what I mean? Well, no, per capita, we punch above our weight. Yeah, yeah. We do. Paul, good to have you on the show. I appreciate the time. Yes, take care, buddy. Thank you too. You. All the best. Bye-bye. A couple of quick ones on children's acetaminophen. They've got it down at the Whaleback Convenience uh, in Portugal Cove. Also, at the Costco Pharmacy, you have to ask for it. It's behind the counter. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to Main Street. Main Street Medical in Springdale. Say good morning to Dr. Todd Young. Dr. Young, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I just wanted to call and uh, just give an update on Medicuro. We uh, were concerned last week about the cap, of course, that was placed on virtual care, not just for physicians with Medicuro, but also for uh, all physicians in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. as a cap that's been placed on by government, and it's been there for some time, and we were asking for it to be removed. And, and I think we've seen over the past week in particular the impact of that. We've had some 700-plus patients that have not been able to have timely access to Medicuro, and we've had to reply and simply say, you know, sorry, but we can't see you. We've uh, kind of reached our, our daily cap. Uh, it, it's frustrating when you know there's a need amongst people, particularly in healthcare during this time, uh, when we have the resources to meet the need, but there's a barrier uh, there to uh, that prevents us from helping. And I think, you know, uh, respiratory infections are up. We're seeing more of that. But And most times people just need reassurance and, and those types of things. Uh, it's, so I just wanted to give an update sort of uh, that I know wait times are a little longer than expected, but it's certainly not because uh, we're not available. It's, uh, it's more than ever we're available to, to help people. There's a lot of contradictions inside of all of this, isn't there? Because the NLMA as the blanket organization says, given what we've learned in the last two and a half years, there's going to be more of a priority put to virtual care. At the exact same time, virtual care doesn't count as being an active physician. At the exact same time as people can't see a family doctor because they don't have one. And yet we've got a tool. That's right there. People understand it now better than they ever have in the past. And there's, for some reason, a cap. Has there anyone ever offered a rationalization as to why there's a cap? No, they haven't. And, you know, we've reached out to officials certainly to try and encourage them. You know, we recognize there's need for regulation and, and oversight and things like that. That's what governments do. But, you know, at this time, it doesn't make sense. Alberta this week, um, I, they did have some parameters around their virtual uh, care uh, plat or, uh, visits, but they just lifted all uh, parameters or barriers that were there, recognizing that people need to be seen and recognizing that, uh, you know, that the, what they had in place was certainly impeding people from having access to virtual care. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to work for every ailment, every issue, but for many, it really will. So why there's a cap? Um, what is the cap, by the way? 40. 40, right. So, so my thing is, you know, and, and just as a, you know, an entrepreneur, I think uh, we put together a, an awesome team of physicians. Uh, we have specialists. We have 
family physicians, we have naturopathic physician, uh, you know, pharmacist on board now. And, and so, you know, uh, as an entrepreneur, of course, uh, trying to improve the status of healthcare in our province, uh, it's, it's just frustrating when, uh, you know, there's, uh, you're not able to provide care unless uh, you're willing to do it for free. I guess you could do that. Yeah, but <laughs> that sort of altruism is only in fairy tales. Yeah. Anyway, so it's it's unfortunate. Yeah. Okay, and we have reached out to the department, as I said, uh, and uh, we haven't heard anything back. But and again, this is not just about Medicuro. I think, actually, I mean, if you look at the need throughout the province, uh, uh, particularly in rural and remote sites, uh, you know, a lot of the Category Bs are still closed. Um, and I, I just think if you look at the need and if we gave physicians the capacity, uh, all physicians, to to help out, uh, I, I, I really think that uh, patients would feel more reassured in our healthcare system. They would get the care that they need. And I think at the end of the day, it would be a net gain for uh, people in our province. I know you can't speak for all doctors, and I'm not going to ask you to, but is it an attractive option for many doctors? Is there much that they have to do in the entrepreneur world to be a virtual care offering inside their clinic? What do you hear? What do you know about this? Most people are using virtual care just with telephone calls. Now, with Medicuro, we've, uh, we're certainly focusing on the integration with our provincial EMR, so we have shared data that we're uh, doing with Nelchi and, and with the Department of Health. Uh, you know, we're following the rules right to the T. And, uh, you know, so I think we've upped the ante a little and we're trying to provide virtual care in, in, a, pla- in, a, in a venue, I guess, that we think best meets the patient's needs. Uh, when it comes to uh, the physicians to come on board with, to, to our platform, no, there's not much. We provide uh, free education. We provide uh, incentives for recruitment and retention. That's why we've been able to put together a team of 16, soon to be 20 physicians. Todd, appreciate the update, even though it's not the one we wanted. No, thanks, though. Appreciate You're welcome. your time. Stay in touch. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, final break of the, well, that's not the final break. It's the newscast here at 11.30. We'll make it back. Still tons of time to speak with you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Jackie. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. Hi listening to that gentleman who called in, but they divert the toxic towns. They divert, yeah. So I want him to know that thanks to the beautiful picture he painted of his community, my husband and I decided that's where we're going to take our vacation, staycation this year. Oh, great. To go visit. And I grew up near St. Lawrence. My grandfather worked in the mine there. So I can only imagine the ugly picture they're going to paint in St. Lawrence. And so you're talking about the corporation picture they're painting. Well, he said there's going to be series on TV, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he was upset that he felt like the production made Bay Vert to look like its entirety is a dirty, toxic town, as opposed to the problems that existed in the mine, which we all understand, including all the Bay Vert miners and their them and their families understand. So Bay Vert itself is a beautiful place. And I can't wait to see it. Yeah, good. So you've never been there before? No. Nope. Are you from the province? I am. I'm like I said. I grew up near St. Lawrence. My grandfather died in the mine in St. Lawrence. Okay. The first part mine. 
Well, enjoy your trip to Bay Verde. They'll be glad to see you. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Jackie. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep going. Line number four. Peter, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, uh, Patty, good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I'd just uh, like to uh, speak about uh, the resignation of uh, Keith Sullivan. Okay. Uh, A.W.? Yep. And um, I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, like, uh, I really feel that uh, Keith Sullivan is a fine man, a good human being, and uh, he raised up by a fine family there, Lloyd Sullivan and his, and his late wife uh, in Calvert. And uh, I think uh, Keith has uh, done the, the best he could with the tools he had as as president of the FFAW. And, uh, you know, like, uh, he spoke there... Uh, so I just want to wish him well. That, that's what I'm saying. My name is Peter Leonard. I, I just like to say uh, I wish you well in the future. And, uh, but, you know, like uh, he spoke, I uh, read one thing on a news article there that partially because negativity. Well, you know, like I, I can understand that because, like, you know, I was a part of Fish and Hill and uh, we fought some of this uh, negativity and things like that. And, uh, but, you know, first he had to, I guess, somewhat work or wit or be guided some way between the the treasurer, David Decker, and uh, Bill Broderick after McCurdy left. And uh, that was no easy piece of cake, you know, like for a younger man to go in and feel and, and do the old ways. And uh, then, you know, like the more negativity, well, you know, like, just after Robert Keane became Secretary Treasurer and Bill and Dave uh, moved on, uh, you know, like uh, Robert Keane up and left, and uh, and now himself, you know, like uh, there, there's a lot of negativity. And then, you know, like he had to deal with the the Fish NL. We had two terms, like uh, and thousands of members signed like to leave the union. So, uh, yeah, I I, I guess. Uh, there was a lot of negativity, and now CNL, and then you know, like you had the scandal there of uh, Nalcor uh, to deal with, and then you had the the, the scandal after Katrina Charlie, and that was blown wide open by uh, CNL, and uh, you know, like uh, I guess there's a lot of weight on one person. You know, there may be a lot of people like in the executive, but you know, at the same time, all of this ends up on the president's desk at the end of the day. You know, that's that's and God for they even had a, a fire inside the building. You know, like so, and then you know, like negativity. Yeah, there's a lot of room for members to have negativity also. But you know, as president, you get to be able to to deal with this stuff, and. Then, Patty, you know, like, right off the bat, they came out uh, uh, after uh, the ink wasn't dried when uh, Keith Sullivan put in his resignation, when they come out and uh, and they made... Uh, um, they endorsed Greg Pretty, yep. Greg Pretty, yes, I know Greg Pretty, but it, it, they made him, you know, to be the, the next guy batter, so to speak. And, uh, you know, like, without looking around... Uh, and for some younger blood, uh, and like I mean, he's probably the last one of the old clan before uh, since uh, Fish and L started. Uh, well, we're folded now, 
But, you know, we, as fish and ale, we achieved a lot of our objectives by cleaning that office basically out. But we didn't do the main thing that we wanted to do. What we wanted to do was have one union for fish harvesters only. And, uh, you know, that now was, uh, was two years into it. And, uh, you know, like, uh, there's some good people around that office, probably around the inshore council table. Probably in the executive, I don't know, but a lot of the executive members are from the old school. But, you know, people like Don Street, you know, like a well-educated, well-spoken person, things like that, you know, she may be female, but what does that have to do with it, really? Yeah, but you're you're the only one making that something to do with it. But what's the problem with the executive board uh, endorsing one person or another? Well, if I was going to endorse something, I'd be looking for change especially with the reputation that the FFA don't do, guys. I'd be looking for change. I wouldn't be like to go on for another two years the way it is right now. And we're going to see, you know, like uh, how Greg Pretty is going to make out uh, when all these uh, price negotiations come up again in, uh, in the spring in a few months' time. And I don't know, like, with a, with a union representing more than one body, how Martin Sullivan or Alberta Wareham can come out of the office and be happy and at the same time, the fish harvester come out and be happy about the price that they just got. So, you know, like, uh, there's a lot of things, and I, I think it's not too late to have a union for harvesters only. You know, that, that's my uh, that's my thing on it. And uh, Robert Keane, he never lasts no time. And, you know, like, you've got to have a tick pilt, you know. Like, uh, sometimes you poke the beer, sometimes the beer will... They'll come back at you, and sometimes they'll just walk away. But, you know, some can take it and some can. But so I suppose if the members if the members don't want Greg Pretty, then they won't fall for him, I suppose. Well, you know, like, seeing like he's already uh, indoors, and, uh, you know, like, so now it's up to, uh, I guess, the inshore council. Are they going to follow the direction of the executive? Or are they going to go and vote for who they are wrong or vote for who they think is best to do the job? Um, I've been around there for almost as long uh, earlier years as uh, Greg Pretty was, or not that long, but close to it. And, uh, you know, is he a president, in my opinion? Probably not. But then I've been wrong before, so we will know in the next two years. Because, like, there's no change in our mind right now. But anyway, like, uh, what I'm saying is, you know, like, uh, the most of the information harvesters get is from CNL and uh, the most updates and everything that the FFAW don't want you to know. Well, that's how we know. But anyway, Patty, you have a happy Friday and uh, dear listeners. And like I say again, I wish all the best to... Uh, Keith Sullivan, and uh, I wish all the best in the future. But uh, like I said, I really think he done the best with the tools he had to work with. And a lot of the negativity comes from those tools. That, that's my opinion on that. If you want to ask me a question, go ahead. I'll try to answer it. I'm not saying I can, but I will. No, I mean, I, I, your opinion is your opinion, Peter. I don't need to question you on it. You know, people 
uh, deduce for themselves whether the whether or not they thought Mr. Sullivan did a good job. I know there was lots of button heads between the Fish and L group and FFAW, and negativity seems to be part and parcel with the fishery, unfortunately, considering it's still such a valuable resource. But, yeah, no, I appreciate you making time for the program. I wish you a happy Friday and a great weekend as well, Peter. You'd be surprised how many... Thank you. Just one sec, uh, if you might. Uh, you'd be surprised how many good Starn Union executive people and inshore council people they told me in person, we like the way that you hold the FSAWC to the fire. I said, you're part of an organization and you want that's so good and you want another organization to hold their feet to the fire? I said, that don't make no sense to me. Well, he said, you got them on the ball. Keep them going, boys. You know, so anyway, maybe, maybe we got a lot of things going in the past. Maybe we didn't win the election, but maybe we'll, we won the, a good part of the war, the battles, I should say. So if only one left there now, that's pretty, and the rest is uh, got the old-timers and the, uh, I'm going to see what kind of a president he is because it seems that's the way that the, the, the vice president and the executive wants to go. And that's the way they're going to lean towards campaign at the inshore council for to uh, vote him in. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Patty, and you have a good weekend. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, it is now the final break of the morning, final break of the week. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, let's see. Let's go to line number two. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you to David and Bill CM. Really appreciate the chance to get on and voice my concern on different issues. And can you hear me okay? Not particularly, Eugene, but Dave's going to patch you up here. We should be okay. Go ahead. Okay, uh, I'm calling this morning. You know, I've been doing a lot of complaining. Well, I'm always complaining, I guess, but I've complained about the moose vehicle accidents in the province, and we have had hundreds this year, and we've had three fatalities that I know of. And, Patty, I've been complaining about uh, trying to get more brush cut, uh, especially where two people were killed, the brush wasn't cut. So uh, I I unofficially got the information. I want to let the public know, because at the area, one of the areas that I've been harping on is the Gander Bay Road, which is between Gander and Jonathan's Pond on the Gander Bay Road. And we have had a lot of moose accidents there, including my my daughter have had a moose accident there, my cousin, and uh, we've had a lot of moose accidents, so it's only a matter of time. This is what I've been telling the public, and, and I've talked to the OCM before, and I've talked to, and I've also tried, and I'm going to get into that one, and I'm going to make this quick. I've been trying to get through to the minister, Minister Lovelace, that this is a very important issue, and we need to get this done before someone gets killed, like they did out by Southbrook. Uh, but uh, I got unofficially got some good news that the tender is out and that area is going to be brush cut, which is wonderful news. And and I want to let the public know out there, traveling public know that this is this is going to get done. But Patty, I I got a big concern on like I'm a member of SOPAC and I'm also a member of the the concerned citizens committee and and and, and a, a victim of a moose vehicle accident. And I don't understand why, when I've been emailing the Minister Lovelace for months now, and no response from his office. Uh, uh, you know, maybe it's just Eugene Nippard. Maybe we shouldn't care about him, and maybe we shouldn't email him back. 
But I don't think that's the way it should be, because someone that's trying to save people's lives in this province, like I have been for years since I farmed so back in 2009, I don't understand why the minister's office, not the minister, the minister's office, you know, the minister called me, I appreciate it, of course, but but no response. And, you know, and one thing, another thing I've been harping on is trying to get moose fencing where there's signage. Where there's signage is important because that's where we've been having a lot of moose vehicle accidents. And I just came out of Nova Scotia. I just came out of Portugal and Spain. And where there's signage, there's fencing. So why don't our government, you know, uh, they know they got the, the, the well, I don't, they say 110,000 moose in the province. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's the figure they use. So why wouldn't they try to protect people's lives and where their signage put fencing? And first of all, brush cut got to be done. Signage has been done, but no fencing. So, you know, if it's important to do it in Nova Scotia or in New Brunswick or in Portugal or Spain or wherever you travel or in Banff or wherever, why wouldn't it be important to do it in Newfoundland? We got 16 climbers in 2009 or whatever it was, 2010, and we haven't got an inch since. So, I mean, the government got to wake up, and I'm trying to do the stats now on how many accidents been in the last year. I got some people, someone working on that for me, and how many people have been killed, so that I can come on your show and tell the people. But the wake-up call, I just passed through Terranova National Park. I see there's 14 now, one since a couple of weeks ago I was there. So that's 14 this year. So that we're seeing the stats there, but we're not seeing the stats in the province. But I'm working on that, and I'm going to get it for the public, Patty, and I'll get it on your show as soon as I get it. Appreciate that, Eugene. Always like the info. Okay. Okay, brother. Okay. Thank you for your time. You're Appreciate welcome. It. Take good care. Bye-bye. Drive safe. Drive safe, everyone. Thanks, Eugene. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, let's go. Line number one. Eleanor, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Uh, just because we're running short, uh, let's see what you got so I can sneak on one or two more. Okay, Patty, we're uh, at Manuel's River getting ready for the holiday season now, like a lot of people. And so we're spending the day today out on our trails foraging for natural materials because we're going to be running our annual forage wreath workshops uh, next week on December 6th and 7th. It's Tuesday and Wednesday, and it's a lovely evening. Uh, If anyone wants to come out and join us, you have a, a beautiful biodegradable wreath at the end of the day, and we'll have all the materials foraged and ready to go for you, so you just bring yourself, and it also includes uh, a festive-inspired cocktail, and we'll have some lovely music playing. It's a nice, quiet evening, and even if you don't consider yourself a really crafty or really creative person, I encourage you to come out and try, because uh, every year what I notice, Patty, is that people who think that you know it's not for them, they, they don't have much skill or talent in that area, they usually surprise themselves with what they come up with. And it's really a great chance to connect with your friends and family who you might come along with or, uh, you know, to, to sit back and have a quiet evening to yourself even and just to to take it a, a chance to slow down in the middle of all the hustle and the bustle that's happening. We're, we're doing our best to simplify this time of year and, and to get back to nature. So it was a really wonderful uh, night out and, and we hope that people will come and join us if they want more information on where to get tickets they can go to manualsriver.ca or they can give us a call at 834-2099 and we'd be happy to help uh, ring you through and, and, and welcome everybody next week. Do you have to be particularly crafty? No really you don't honestly <laughs> like when I started making these wreaths back in 2016 I, I really wouldn't have considered myself a crafty person but my favorite part, actually, of watching uh, people do the wreaths throughout the years is that each 
person is so unique that what they come up with is really a, an expression of themselves and the materials lend themselves to inspiration and the wreath, even if you've been to one of these workshops before, the wreath is different every year because what we find growing out on the trails is different each year. And so uh, what you come up with, you know, you don't have to just do a circular wreath. You can think outside the box or outside the circle, as it were. And we've had people do all kinds of interesting shapes and add a lot of, of different decorative elements. Some people go less is more. And, of course, there's always a few who want to go more is more. But at the end of the day, the best part about these wreaths is not only that they smell really fresh and and that they're really exquisite and beautiful, but also that, you know, there's no uh, plastic wrapping or or wastage to go in the garbage, and you don't have the issue that you have with an artificial tree or an artificial wreath, that you have those, you know, nasty chemicals off-gassing, those polyvinyl uh, chloride. You don't want those in your home. They can make people quite sick. So these, these are a way to just go back to nature and, simplify and do a really healthy and beautiful uh, thing for yourself or even to use as a gift um, for one of your loved ones. Appreciate the time this morning. Good luck with this event, Eleanor. Okay, thanks so much, Patty, and we'll talk to you soon. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye. All right, uh, line number two or three. Gordon, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Patty, um, a first-time caller. Um, I was uh, driving on the Trans-Canada yesterday uh, evening, uh, and somewhere in the vicinity of uh, uh, Glovertown, I came upon a, a, a package on the road. It, it is one of those tubs that you can see through uh, sort of thing, and uh, it's full of shoes. <laughs> it, was right, it was right in my line of uh, traffic, right in my lane, and, and I stopped and retrieved it from the highway. So if anybody lost a, a, a packet of shoes, they can get them. Uh, well, I give the number on the, on the air. I, I gave it earlier. You, you can just leave it with David if you prefer. Yes, I already did that. Okay, so was it a collection of a variety of men's, women's, and children's shoes, or what was in there? Well, it looked to me like it was mostly women's and children's shoes. There was about seven or eight pairs of shoes, all types of shoes in there. So that obviously bounced out of the back of a rig or something. So it's a yes, one of those. It and uh, when uh, when it hit the pavement, it shattered it somewhat, but uh, it's still intact. You know, uh, it's still uh, we say in one piece. That sounds good. So this was found uh, in and around Glovertown, pardon me. So if you had a big Tupperware container full of shoes, Gordon has them, and we have Gordon's number. Yes, perfect. Good man. Thanks for this, Gordon. Yes, and thank you for the very good service that you're you're offering. I appreciate that. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. All right, did you lose the shoes? We know where's they be. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We'll pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.